All right. Shot time. Nice. Not looking forward to this. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Clink. Ooh. Oh. Why did that feel a thousand times bigger than it normally does? Fuck. <laughs> Literally, I think 50% of the funny things about this podcast are going to be about the fact that we're drinking as two people who legitimately probably do not enjoy alcohol like 80% of the time. <laughs> Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. What is up, party people? I'm Sam. Sitting over there that you can't see, but you are listening to is Katie. Yeah. We are about to get real lit up in this bitch. This is the show where two people get drunk who don't particularly enjoy alcohol. One being a cinephile in her spare time. The other being a community college English professor and published author. We're here to talk to you about your favorites and not favorites, classic literature and trashy-ass movies, because why not? Sometimes they'll be classics, but most of the time they'll be shitty. (laughs) A thousand percent, I guarantee most of the stuff that I cover is the things that people are not looking forward to, which is kind of why I chose to do it that way because you know the whole premise of like distilling stories that are really complex into like modern day speak for people you know like drunk history and all that good stuff like the stories are good there's a reason that they're classics there's a reason that they endure it's just that people have forgotten and this is I'll get off my soapbox in a second but like people have forgotten that like you have to relate it to the newest generation you have to relate it to them in modern terms they can understand and contextualize it for them you always have to that's just like how it always has to be for humanity uh but they've forgotten that so just trying to like shove freshman 15 year olds noses into fucking romeo and juliet and just forcing them to memorize that it's apparently a quote unquote good story or whatever is just not working (laughs) so you know what i can make it work while drunk suck it primary and secondary education in america (laughs) accurate <laughs> today we actually collaborated i'm very uh, we excited super about proud. this so today our theme is the phantom of the opera yes 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 it is uh actually a piece of classic literature bet you didn't know that but it is yeah uh and i will be covering the original uh english translation let me be clear of the french 1909 novel and then katie will be doing her own spiel on some one or at on, least one of on the, the <laughs> adaptations specifically on the 2004 adaption uh of oh. phantom of the opera starring emmy rossum and gerard butler yeah Oh my God, Gerard Butler is perfect in that movie. Okay, sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You might witness a cat fight later on in this episode. This might be like the first time that you hear me and Katie disagree on things. And that'll be fine. Disagreement's fine. (laughs) So we have the Phantom of the Opera, or in French, Le Phantom de l'Opera. I took several years of French in high school, which means that I can 
pronounce things really fancy sounding and make them sound fun. And I have absolutely uh, maybe 20% comprehension of what things actually mean, but at least they'll sound pretty for you. So you're welcome. <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera was written by uh, Gaston Leroux. Uh, it was first published as like a serialized edition. So like he he published it in an installments, basically. It was a series. Uh, and it was called Le Galois, or Le Gaulois. Uh, it started in uh, the 23rd of September in 1909. And the last of the series uh, happened on the 8th of January in 1910. It's just a couple days after my birthday. Nice. I mean, not, not in like 1909. I'm not like you You're know, a ghost. 100 years old or anything. Uh, <laughs> although I definitely feel over 100 years old, like 90% of the time. So it was then later published in a full volume a couple months later in like March. Uh, Pierre Lafitte compiled all of the serialized uh, parts of the story and published it in one volume. Which was really common so for the time, right? Like didn't Shakespeare do a bunch of stuff like that? And yes. Edgar Allan Poe did a bunch of stuff like that and it was just later compiled. Yeah, it was very much the same idea that we would have now of um, like uh, putting out books that are already planned to be part of like a trilogy, you know, like Twilight or yeah. a bunch of the other young adult things, Hunger Games, The Maze Runner. What people what? people start writing stuff and they intentionally are putting it out before they finish the full story because it's intended to be an experience that people <clears throat> read and then wait for and read and then wait for. What this stuff always reminds me of the all of the really great works of literature that were released in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, early 1900s like this. For those of you who are familiar with anime, you might know of a magazine called Shonen Jump, which is basically where all great anime, all great shonen anime come from. Everything basically starts there. An artist gets an idea and starts writing and he writes right. as writes it as a comic, but only releases a little bit of the story every week. So Shonen right. comes out every week like a newspaper would. Like think of the comic strip in like a Sunday paper. But Shonen is a magazine of a whole, just nothing but comics. So, yes. So it's like That's that. That's actually entirely exactly what it was. It's basically like what you get when you would put like a, like a comic strip or something in the newspaper. It would just be a short continuation of the story that you're reading yeah so, so you part have to of catch your up. paper exactly and you would have to collect them all obviously because if you you know got the sunday paper last week but you don't get the sunday paper this week and then you do get it the following week you've missed a part you've of missed the story, part of the story yeah so it's really important to keep up with it and these books like phantom of the opera that sam is talking about is are very similar to what happens with anime after the story is done or close to being done in shonen so they will write volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes on shonen and eventually they all get compiled and then someone's like hey this would make a great tv show and then they make a show out of it and right. you get all your best stuff like my hero academia and naruto yeah. and full metal alchemist and all of those things all came from <gasps> things that were released in this way just a little bit at a time for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and years. Right. I'm it's like a TV show. It, yeah. It's, uh, 
human beings have for a long time understood that sitting down and reading a full book from cover to cover is something that some people enjoy, but most of humanity actually enjoys stories in particular the best when they are an episodic type of experience. Oh, when for you sure. Can get, when you can get the characters in the story that you are interested in and in little chunks, you get little stories that are all related somehow you could look at one of them and they could stand alone by themselves, but you can also put them all together and they can tell a huge long story yeah. and it's just up to you. However you want to experience that. That is yeah. something that the majority of humanity usually prefers. Yep. So they've been doing it for a long time. So without further ado, let us dive into the plot of the original novel, The Phantom of the Opera or The Phantom de l'Opera by Gaston Leroux. So we are set in Paris in the 1880s. Okay, this is set pretty much exactly like around the time of when Gaston Leroux published his work. So this would have been very timely. It would have been something that everyone was surrounded with at that exact moment. And it would have definitely been something that like almost like an alternate reality kind of. Uh, and we'll get into that a little more later after I'm done, because whether or not at least he believed that it was alternate reality or not is disputed. But we are in Paris in the 1880s. Uh, and our primary location is the Palais Garnier, which is an opera house. And this opera house, as the story goes in the novel, is said to believed to have been haunted by an entity known as the Phantom of the Opera, or more colloquially, by, especially by the people that worked in the opera house, by the opera ghost. Where we jump into this story is Gaston Leroux essentially is writing this as if he is doing an expose almost. So he's like saying like, oh, I've just been like a researcher about all of this. And I'm just so, I've just been so interested in the story of the opera ghost. And was he real? And did all of this stuff happen that I've like interviewed all the people involved? And I've like looked up historical documents and I've like compiled all this stuff. And I'm about to like drop the knowledge on you and like this is what really happened. These are my sources. You're about to get like the realest, most accurate, like uh, sourced version of this tale that you're ever going to get. And I have compiled it for you. So he tells us that the earliest uh, specific part of the story that he jumps in on is that one day in particular, <laughs> There is a stagehand in the opera house by the name of Joseph Bouquet, and he is found hanged in the back of the opera one day. But when they find him, at first he is obviously hanging, but when they go to get people to like try and help cut him down, and then when they do cut him down and they're like moving around to prep bodies and get them out of their locations and however it is you do that. I'm something like CSI, except in 1909, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> the noose around his neck goes missing in that kerfuffle and no one knows where the noose goes, but they have a dead stagehand on their hands. Now, this happens at the same time that a performer by the name of Christine Daae 
has a performance that is the best performance that she's given in her career. So she performs on this same day in the musical Faust, which is probably something that is real, I'm sure, but I haven't. It, it definitely uh, is. It. It's incredible. I mean, well, Dr. Faustus is is a play. Absolutely. Um, I just haven't listened to any of the like opera stuff for Faust, but so I've Faust, heard it's great. Faust is an opera and it is incredible. Yeah. 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 The original one is by uh, Christopher Marlowe. Christine Daae is performing in Faust this same night, but she is performing differently than she normally does. She's normally just a chorus actress and singer. She's really known only as a so-so singer. Not a lot of people really even know who she is, but tonight she is taking the place of the normal prima donna who would have the, the leading role. The leading role in most literally everything in this opera house would be given to La Carlotta. And she is out ill this night. She has a quote unquote illness, uh, which we get told from Gaston LaRue is probably not her actually being ill. It was probably her being like a diva and being like, you don't pay me enough. I'm going to throw a fit. See how you do without me. Me, I'm ill. <laughs> basically. And so La Carlotta just like pieces out. And so they put in Christine Daae to take her place. And at the performance, she sings her freaking heart out and everyone's just dumbfounded. Everyone is like, holy shit, where has this woman been? Like, I had no idea she could sing like this. Wow. And like the whole crowd loves it. She's an instantaneous star, basically. In this performance uh, is the Comte and the Vicomte de Chagny. So this would be like um, translating out of French. It's like a Count and a Viscount, basically. Uh, so like the Viscount would be like just the one right below. If the Count dies, then the Viscount would become the Count, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's the Count and his brother, the Vicomte de Chagny. And the Vicomte, his name is Raoul. His brother, the uh, Comte de Chagny, is named Philippe. Raoul goes after the play to see Christine in her dressing room because he, when he was watching her in the performance, recognized her. And so he is going to go to talk to her. So when he finds her, he greets her, but she seems to not recognize him at first. And she kind of is like, oh, I just, I just want to be left alone for right now. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she like, like just runs off into her dressing room. And so everyone's kind of like, okay, that's a little weird. So everyone disperses, but Raoul stays because uh, we'll learn later that Raoul doesn't just like recognize her like, oh yeah, that's that girl that I knew from that like one time. Like Raoul recognizes her for a very specific and important reason to him. So he stays around because he thinks to himself, like maybe I can talk to her when she leaves her room later, when she's calmed down, maybe whatever. So he listens at the door, basically. And at the door, he hears inside a man's voice talking to Christine about how she is singing only for him, that she must love this man who's talking to her. And Raoul is instantaneously jealous AF. Because uh, if you haven't guessed yet, he is like a thousand percent in love with Christine Daae. So 
he waits he kind of moves away because he doesn't want to like listen anymore because it pisses him off too much but he waits still and christine leaves abruptly a couple minutes later but no one else leaves with her so he waits until she's fully gone and then he goes into her room but there's no one in there which to him is impossible because he's like i fucking heard a man's voice in here there's someone else in here wtf but there is no one he checks the closet he checks everywhere there's no one in there and he's like am i insane what just happened so while this was happening in a different part of the opera house there's a retirement party going on for the former managers of the opera house this retirement party is happening and the two new managers are Monchamon and Richard. They are here, uh, and this is a party basically sending the former managers off and welcoming the new managers in. And at this party, the opera ghost makes an appearance. And at first, people don't really realize who he is because he has a mask on uh, and he's very, like, mysterious. But eventually people do realize that like oh shit this is like the opera ghost like what the fuck and he even in the middle of dinner tells the entire dinner table all about bouquet's death that it's his doing essentially and the former managers are very very startled uh when they realize that the opera ghost is here and is now talking so like when the opera ghost just kind of skedats because that's just his mo and no one can like figure out where he's gone the new managers are taken off by the old managers and the old managers are like hey uh yeah that that whole like ghost thing that wasn't like a like a bit that that wasn't like part of like our party or something like that to like be fun and like poke a joke at you no that dude's real um so here's all of his like demands like you're gonna have to live with him now that you're the managers of this opera house he takes twenty thousand francs a month box five is his we've written all of his stuff in our like a uh, guidebook for you so here you go and uh you've met him now so uh our work is done good luck and they just kind of peace out because they are very freaked out by the fact that the opera ghost has shown up the new managers talk amongst themselves and they're very convinced that this is just like a joke. They're like, oh, this is so funny. Poking, you know, poking fun at the new guys. Like, ha ha ha. Oh no, this opera ghost. So they don't take it seriously, but they get letters from the ghost in the next couple of days telling them to have Christine sing a certain role. And as these days and it's insinuated kind of weeks go away and pass, he also gives them letters to stop giving away his box because it's insinuated that they have been giving his box away to people who pay for the box. And he's like, yeah, you need to stop doing that. Like, I know that the former managers told you about me and told you what my demands are and told you what I ask and you haven't done this. So stop giving my box away. So when they get this letter to stop giving away the box, they do it because they, again, they think this is a joke. So the ghost thanks them in a letter the next time that they leave the box open. So they think to themselves like, okay, so the former managers have had their fun now. It's very clear, like they'll probably just stop now. So they go back to giving the box away again. 
sorry, I'm like sweeping over a shit ton of details. You're I know fine. it seems weird, <laughs> weird but like th- these are just, they're, the details are not super pertinent. <laughs> it's just funny stuff. But they go back to giving the box away. And when they start doing this, because now I guess the ghost has decided like, okay, well, if you're not going to fucking take me seriously, I'll have to show you how serious I am. So the ghost starts fucking with the people who like buy the box and go in and like causing disturbances in there and like freaking everyone out and getting them in trouble for like talking too loudly or doing crazy things that the people have not actually done and they have no idea what's happening when they like get in trouble when they like get like pulled out by like the opera security or whatever but he just like starts causing fucking mayhem basically for anyone who takes his box so during this whole time christine has been avoiding talking to raul the vicomte Finally, however, she sends Raoul a letter saying that she is sorry that she pretended not to know him when he first came because she does remember him and she wants to meet him in the holiday place that he used to visit where she and her father lived when they were younger. This is why he knows her. This is the revealing by Gaston LaRue of this is why Raoul knows her. So there's a bit where Raoul like remembers the childhood memories that he has of these summers. Uh, And like when they first met, they were childhood friends and he, you know, was in love with her basically. And her father was alive back then. And so he and Christine would sit and listen to her father play music all the time. And it's just this magical memory. The father would often talk in these when he would talk, he would tell them these stories all the time. And one of the stories he would tell would be about the angel of music. And he would play them incredible songs on his violin just all the time. So in these memories, we learn that Rao had obviously fallen in love with her. And then he gets to the memory of the last time he came to see her. And it's a bittersweet memory because he knows that he can't be with her, that he's fallen in love with someone that cannot actually be his wife because of his station in society. She is a pauper, essentially. Uh, the class system is, is bullshit. Just yeah. So if you didn't already know, <laughs> the class system so like, is absolute yeah. bullshit. If you're unaware kind of what the class system is um, based on our small brief jaunt into it if you've seen the movie hamilton the reason Mm -hmm. that angelica cannot end up with hamilton yes is because of the class system because she's the eldest eldest she She has has to to marry marry rich into money exactly she has to marry higher than her station um because those are the rules yes (laughs) And, and men of money are expected to marry women who are still of money, but not as of much money, so that we can just continue perpetuating this idea of the billionaire class, is what I'm going to say. They weren't billionaires at the time, but this is how we... But that's essentially what it is, yeah. This is how... This is basically what it is. Like, oh, you can't marry Jeff Bezos because you're not also rich. Like, you have to be a rich person to marry a rich person so that we can just continue spreading the gap between normal people and our wealthy asses like yeah so running with that metaphor essentially like the problem here is that raul is like jeff bezos's brother 
So Jeff Bezos can marry whoever the fuck he wants because Jeff Bezos is Jeff Bezos. He's got a shit ton of money. Uh, if he marries a fucking urchin on the street, what are you going to do? He has all the money in the fucking world. Yeah. So he can do what he wants. But yeah. his brother, on the other hand, can't do that because if thing- something happens and the Vicomte has to take the position of the count there needs to be a like certain stable station in place with their relations so essentially if if raul was his brother he would be able to bury christine probably and people wouldn't think too much of it they probably talk about it as like <gasps> scandalous They're, like it would probably be like a dramatic like ooh gossip on like tmz but like in 1909 or whatever but it wouldn't be very clearly wrong and verboten as him as the Vicomte marrying a literal pauper that like no one knows. <laughs> so that's the last time he's seen her, essentially, was the last time that he came to her and he was basically coming to say goodbye at, because he was letting her know that like, we obviously know that we're in love with each other but I'm older now and I, I just can't. And it's just not like, I don't want to do this to you. Essentially, it's not fair to you. And so I'm going to move on and, you know, you should too. And I wish you all the best, basically. And he hasn't seen her since. So now when they meet at their place after she has sent this letter, he confronts her about the man in her room. He asks her like, why she pretended not to recognize him and she's like i obviously recognized you like i told you in the letter it was just complicated so when she realizes that he actually did hear someone in her room that is when she decides to explain to him about the angel of music and she says who you heard was the angel of music and he's like yeah that's cute and she's like no no literally i'm not being cute you heard the angel of music in my dressing room. And he's like, Christine. <laughs> and it's just like rubbing his forehead. And it's like, someone is obviously fucking with you. Like you're dumb. A, a real angel of music does not fucking exist. And she gets very angry about this and is like, fuck you. You have no idea what I've been going through basically. And like storms out. So that night, she sneaks out of the house to go to her father's grave. And so he sees that she has snuck out. So he follows her. Um, he stays behind because he doesn't want to, you know, intrude on her privacy, but he wants to make sure that she's safe, basically. So she goes to her father's grave and she's sitting and he suddenly hears music start playing seemingly from out of nowhere. And it is just like divine music. Like, it's just like the best fucking shit you've ever heard. Like Raul notes this in his thoughts, like, it is almost like her father is alive again playing like it's that good. So when he's hearing this, he sees because he's just like, where the fuck is this music coming from? And he does see a mysterious figure in the headstones. So when Christine leaves, he tries to follow this figure. And I'll just read to you just like a little bit of the passage because initially when we had planned to like do this Phantom of the Opera thing, it was going to be one of our like spooky episodes. It can still be that. Yeah, it can for sure. And if it is, then you're welcome. So 
I was thinking when I was doing these notes, like, how am I going to like show people why this is supposed to be horror? Like it's actually valid to read. And it's because the opera and, you know, Katie will definitely get into this more later, but like the opera and the adaptations have significantly not changed a whole bunch of things, but altered the tone of some of the events in the story. This book was a fucking nightmare. Like this story is not meant to be like, oh, so cutesy. Oh, so heart, you know, like tragic, but also loving and beautiful. And like the musical portrays, like this story was a fucking like gothic horror story. And Gaston LaRue was not here to play. So this is the description of Raoul in his own words talking about when he tries to follow the figure. The question that has been put to Raoul is, what happened so that you were found in the morning lying half dead on the steps of the high altar? Raoul says, first a skull rolled to my feet and then another and then another. It was as if I were the mark of that ghastly game of bowls, and I had an idea that false step must have destroyed the balance of the structure behind which our musician was concealed, which he's concealed behind a fucking wall of skulls. Sorry. This surmise seemed to be confirmed when I saw a shadow suddenly glide along the sacristy wall. I ran up. The shadow had already pushed open the door and entered the church but I was quicker than the shadow and caught hold of a corner of its cloak. At that moment, we were just in front of the high altar and the moonbeams fell straight upon us through the stained glass windows of the apse. As I did not look over the cloak, the shadow turned around and I saw a terrible death's head, which darted a look at me from a pair of scorching eyes. I felt as if I were face to face with Satan. And in the presence of this unearthly apparition, my heart gave way and my courage failed me. And I remember nothing more until I recovered consciousness at the setting sun. So I have one more part that I have bookmarked to read a little bit later, which is like worse and fun. But this entire story was not meant to be like a super huge love story. It is first and foremost, very, very much gothic horror. (laughs) So Raul catches sight of the phantom and then passes the fuck out? Essentially, yes. Uh, He has followed him to this like abandoned church and he was hiding essentially behind a like mound in the churchyard that is made of like stones and skulls and a bunch of gross stuff. And the skulls like as the phantom is moving away to try and get away from him, the skulls like knock out of the wall and like roll to his feet. So just imagine you're like running after this crazy bitch. Yeah. You know, like in uh, the middle of the night in a fucking churchyard. And this is a literal shadow at this point. You don't know because you haven't been able to tell whether or not this is a real human or not. And there's skulls rolling around at your feet and like essentially like coming at you. And then you grab it and this guy turns around and his face is so horrific that you essentially pass out from being frightened. You know, like when you don't know someone's walking down the hallway and they're like, hey, and you're like, oh, fuck. And you think you're about to have a heart attack when they say that because you had no idea that they were fucking there. Yeah. That. But you actually pass out. Yeah. 
In other words, Rowl a bitch. <laughs> so book Rowl kind of a bitch. Because that is not what happens in the musical, but we'll get there. Listen, listen, you're gonna have so much fun with the last half of this book. So back at the Palais the new managers have received a new letter from the Phantom. This letter is demanding that they allow Christine to perform the lead role of Marguerite in Faust and that box five again obviously be left empty for him. And if they don't abide by this rule, because they have, remember, not been listening to his dictates for several weeks now, the Phantom says, if you do not do what I demand in this letter... I will curse this opera house. And the managers are like, oh, for fuck's sake, this prank is too much. They've taken this too far. Fuck these guys. And they ignore it. So they ignore the phantom's demands. And this has disastrous consequences. They go to box five themselves that night because they're like, we're going to guard the box because this is just too much. The former managers are just, this is not funny. And at first, obviously, nothing seems to be happening. Raoul is here tonight, too, by the way. Uh, He got a letter when he came back to Paris, by the way, from Christine that said that if he loved her, he would never try to see her or think of her again, basically. So they did not listen to a thing the opera ghost said, which means Christine is not Marguerite. Carlotta is Marguerite. Carlotta, on stage in the middle of performing, suddenly starts croaking like a toad out of nowhere and it's entirely obvious that's not what she's trying to do it comes literally straight out of nowhere one minute she's fine the next minute she cannot open her mouth without a toad sound coming out everyone is like what the fuck and suddenly the managers hear right in their ears in box five she is singing tonight to bring the chandelier down and the minute they hear this uttered in their ears from a ghost as much as they can tell the chandelier the huge ass heavy chandelier in the theater breaks off and drops down into the audience and it kills someone probably multiple people i would imagine it, it definitely at least kills one person is that's what on- we're noted is what is that's, noted <laughs> that's honestly the most unbelievable part of the musical <laughs> right. is that, that it doesn't kill more than one person is really. that this this ginormous like if any of you have ever been into a true theater like a broadway meant for plays and stuff theater typically they have really pretty fancy ornamentation on the ceiling and the walls and it all leads up to the center which usually houses a magnificent chandelier and i'm and when i say magnificent i don't just mean like holy shit that's really pretty I mean, this shit is like 20 feet in diameter. Like if it fell on the audience, it would kill 400 people. It's yeah, it's like tons. It weighs tons at least. And it's, you know, it's covered in diamonds and crystals. And it's at this time, specifically in this setting, it's a gas powered chandelier. So all of the candles and stuff that are lit Mm -hmm. up there, there's gas pumping through them. Mm -hmm. Um, So all these people are fucking high because of the fumes of the gas, I'm sure. Yes. (laughs) But thousand percent. It's a gas chandelier falling from the ceiling that is massive. And the way they depict it in the movie, 
is a little different a little more believable that people could kind of get away but i'm sure the way they depict it is just like oh no it just fucking fell straight down in which case it would have killed like murdered 40 50 percent 60 people like if you've been in a theater you know how close and tight everything is and a giant chandelier falling on a big part of the audience would kill a lot of fucking folks so many people yeah yeah for sure at the very least there was a lot of carnage um i believe that he mentions that like a shit ton amount of the audience were injured uh some like severely injured but in terms of actual death count only one person is mentioned from larue which is like okay sure dude sure i mean the movie makes it seem like nobody dies so yeah sure they all got out of the way (laughs) yeah please so christine disappears after this she's just gone and no one knows where the fuck she went and Raoul is beside himself. So he finally goes back to the place that he used to vacation where her patron lives. It was first her patron. Now it's her patroness because her original patron died. So his wife is now her patroness. You get what I'm saying. She is like Christine's mom, but not, yeah. you know. So he goes back her there. Her foster to mom, s- essentially. He, essentially, yes. So he goes back to the patroness's house to see her. The patroness is super old you know she's very much you know christine is her baby she can do no wrong everything's fine uh she tells him christine is with the angel of music now that you know raul doesn't have to worry that she's gone with the angel of music and that the angel of music has forbidden christine to ever marry which is why obviously she you know was having such a hard time with Raoul because the angel of music forbids her to marry because if she marries uh, she'll never hear from him again so this is why obviously Christine was so distressed at Raoul's attention because Christine is very very much in love with Raoul too and that would be the only person that she would ever leave the angel of music for. And she doesn't know how to reconcile this situation. So Raul is just devastated. Basically he goes to his brother to like talk about it. And it's really sad and it's really cute. Like Philippe is not like a huge character in the novel, but he's more of a presence than he gets obviously in the stories. Cause he's just like not even there, but it's super cute. Christine starts being seen about town suddenly after being gone for so long. So now Raoul suddenly has hope again. And he receives a letter from her when she starts being seen again. Her letter tells him to go to the masquerade ball at the opera house that's coming up dressed in a certain way. And she'll meet him at a certain place, et cetera, et cetera, at a certain time. You get it. So at the masquerade, he does what she asks. They meet. They fight because Raoul is jealous AF and Christine can't really afford him much honesty at this point of what's been going on. So Raoul in the masquerade sees the man from the graveyard walking around in the ball and he's like, oh, fuck, that's the dude from the graveyard. The next day, Raoul goes again to visit the patroness, uh, Christine's patroness. Christine is there this time. They still kind of fight a little this time when they see each other, 
But she says that she'll tell him to come to her dressing room soon, basically. That like, when I give the signal soon, I'll tell you to come to my dressing room and then come and then you'll learn more, basically. So she does this in a few days. She wants to have a romance with him, basically. She wants to pretend that they are engaged. He's supposed to go off on like a polar expedition to like Antarctica or something like that. Like he tells her this as well because he's, you know, a V-Compt and apparently that's what they do. So he's like, that's going to happen in a month. And she's like, well, that's perfect. Then we can just have a month where we pretend to be engaged. And so it's insane. And Raoul knows that this is insane, but he's so in love with her that he like can't say no, basically. So they play at being engaged for like a month (laughs) and it's really hard for them. And as the weeks go by, finally, at one point, she takes him to the highest point that she obviously can, which is, of course, the roof of the opera house. And Christine tells Raoul everything here. So this is Christine's story. She is now going backwards in time and telling us what she has been doing (laughs) and all of the things that has been happening to her while we have been following the managers and Raoul, poor people. So this is Christine's story. She has had the Angel of Music with her for three months now. That's as far back as he showed up for her. After the first time she saw Raoul at the opera, she saw him before he saw her. Because he was going to things, but remember, she was a chorus girl. So she wasn't very prominent, obviously, in a lot of the performances. So she saw him, actually, before he saw her. When she saw Raoul, she was very excited. And the angel of music's voice could tell that she loved him. And he became instantaneously jealous and told her that she could not marry anyone ever or he would leave her. So she promised not to and she was thinking at this time clearly Raul doesn't know I exist I'm a fucking chorus girl he already told me he's never going to love me like you know it's fine then he comes to her that night the first night where we started our story so she is like fuck and pretends to not recognize him so that the phantom wouldn't know but she did that in vain because the phantom notices anyway basically so the phantom confronts her she's rebellious at first and insistent essentially that like she will see him when she goes to visit her father's grave and there's just nothing that the angel of music can do about it you know they're childhood friends she can have a friend so we skip ahead to the night that after Carlotta was on the stage and like started croaking and the chandelier fell down that night The reason she disappeared was because she was literally abducted by the Phantom, kidnapped, like full stop. She could tell she was underground and going through like some lake with him, basically, and eventually is kind of brought to his like underground cavern lair. And he reveals himself here to her that he's obviously not a ghost and he is also not the angel of music. He is a man. He is a mortal man and he is deformed and his name is Eric. And Eric intends to hold her prisoner in his lair with him for a few days. She causes him to change his plans because she unmasks him at one point to the horror of both. 
he did not want that to happen and she did not realize just how bad he was under the mask he's noseless he doesn't have a nose basically like at all uh he has virtually no lips so his teeth are just bare constantly and he is very sunken eyed it is very much like looking at a skull with just like leather basically stretched over it so fearing that she is going to leave him again he decides to hold her permanently now because he's like well now you fucking dumb it because you're you know you've seen my face so you're never gonna want to come back but after two weeks of being with him she breaks him down and requests that she be released and so he agrees on the condition that she wear his ring and be faithful to him. So that is her story up until this point, because now she's been released, as you can see. Oh, there's still so much crazy shit that's about to happen. Sorry. Um, so at this point, Christine, this is the end of her story. So we're back on the roof. Uh, Christine makes Raoul promise to take her away, basically. She's just like, please, just take me to a place that Eric can never find us. And you have to do it, even if I resist you. When the time comes, no matter how hard I fight you, you have to take me away anyway, basically. And Raoul says, I will. I promise. I promise this. Uh, You know, we'll do it tomorrow. And she agrees. So the thing to take away here, basically, is that Christine is very sympathetic to Eric, even though she clearly does not love him and is very horrified by him. There is something that she sees in him that makes her feel sorry for him, basically. And she can see, essentially, a human aspect of Eric that no one else really can. Basically, she's like, okay, this is good, because if you do it tomorrow instead of tonight, I can sing for him one last time, basically. Unbeknownst to Christine and Raul, Eric... The Phantom has been watching them and listening to them this entire time. That night, he visits Raoul in Raoul's bedroom. He's super silent. He's super fucking creepy. Raoul um, basically like tries to track him in the darkness onto his balcony of his, you know, vicomte bedroom. He shoots him twice with a revolver. And he's pretty sure that he's hit him because there's blood when he like looks for the evidence of him, but there's no body and there's no Eric. So Raoul is just beside himself. He doesn't know what to do other than to just continue on with his and Christine's plans. And his brother is obviously just like, what the fuck is happening? Because his brother has no idea about any of this. And so he and his brother have this huge fight because it is very obvious that Raoul at this point has basically decided, like, I don't give a shit about the caste system. I don't give a shit about our classes. I'm going to marry Christine and be with her for the rest of my life. And there's literally nothing you can do about it. And his brother is very upset about this. It's not decent, et cetera, et cetera. So the following night, Eric is enraged, jealous. He abducts Christine in the middle of the production. She's like literally in the middle of singing and he just like goes yoink and one minute she's there and and the next minute she's not and it is magical and 
everyone is like, what the fuck? And Raul is just like incensed. He has no idea what to do. He tries to find her. Finally, he comes to the manager's office after he's called the police and asked them to come with him. So when he goes to the manager's office, we learn here some things about the managers that they've been trying to fucking deal with. The managers have been trying to figure out that when they were initially trying to like give the OG some of his stuff, they were going to do this thing where they like gave the money, quote unquote, to the OG, but then whoever took it for the OG or whoever took it, they were going to like nail that person for extortion, basically. But something happened to where it ended up not being possible. Like the details are just not important. What's important is they thought they were going to catch somebody stealing money from them, basically, and it didn't happen. And so they were furious about that and paranoid. So they've been trying to figure out how he took their money without them being able to like figure out how. So they finally assume that the person who has stolen this money was their like house manager named Madame Geary because she has been the most sympathetic person that works at the opera house to the opera ghost. So they have called her to their, you know, office at one point to like demand that she get the money back, but she had not actually stolen anything from them. So this time they had the envelope in one of their pockets secured with a safety pin. Neither of them had moved the entire time. No one touched the pocket, but when they went to check it, the money was still gone. So now they are 40,000 francs in the hole for this ghost that they are convinced cannot be real and must be a joke. They're convinced someone is stealing money from them. So when Raoul goes up here and brings the police, the managers do not give a single fucking shit about Christine Daae. They're all about their money. So the police commissary hears this from Raoul and hears this from the managers. And the police commissary in his own mind is thinking like, Jesus, I am surrounded by fucking crazy people. Uh, (laughs) Basically, but he tells Raoul, hey, listen, your brother's carriage was outside when Christine like disappeared. It was probably just your brother who took Christine because your brother doesn't want you to marry her. Like, right? And Raul is like, absolutely the fuck not. He would never dare. So Raul goes off to investigate this claim. And as he goes off, he is confronted in the opera house by this man that the people who work in the opera house, I'm so sorry, trigger warning, racism, I guess? The Persian. He gets confronted by this man known as the Persian. And the Persian is like, hey, I know who you are. I know all about what's going on. I know you're looking for the ghost and you're looking for Christine. You got to follow me. And the next bit of the story Gaston LaRue gives us is directly narrated by the Persian's account because Gaston LaRue makes this big well-to-do about like he got to meet the Persian. He got to talk to him face-to-face, and the Persian gave a whole bunch of accounts of, you know, eyewitness firsthand accounts of what went on this night. So now we are about to dive into the Persians. I literally don't know his name, which is why I cannot call him anything other than the Persian. Trigger warning, racism. The Persian is about to tell us what happens next when he meets Raoul and convinces Raoul to follow him. Anyway, 
Hi, yeah, yeah. Annoyed that I have to refer to him as this. Refer to him as Xerxes because that's the only Xerxes P. Mr. P. Can I call him Mr. P? Sure, Mr. P. That's good. So Ral is taken by Mr. P. <laughs> to christine dies or i'll probably slip up and still call him the persian because that's what you're it's fine. called in the fucking story but it's you're just fine. so annoying that's the like, problem that's <laughs> I, that's part of the problem with our podcast is doing classic literature where in a lot of the classics they didn't give any fucks about racism oh yeah or eventually how they referred to anyone like someday uh, down the line if we ever end up doing like huckleberry finn like that that's shit literally is. exactly what i was about to say i was all n-word jim yeah <laughs> like, like oh, it okay. is it's cool. a lot we're just gonna call him jim because jim that's because that's a name and that's the only name he needs because <laughs> jim is a name we didn't i don't need to know what? I don't need to know all need, of that. I don't need it. I don't need it. Racism is garbage. Don't be racist, people. Please. Please. If you are listening to this and you're racist, fuck you. Get out of here. Just, we don't want just you. Just stop. Just we don't stop. want your we don't want your patronage. Go away. I feel you, I know you feel like it's not that that it's not up to you, but it is. It really is. So just stop. And if you're not going to stop, then don't listen to us. No, I'll just I'll just <laughs> I'll just you're make, not welcome. I'll just make everyone really uncomfortable. And if you're racist, I'd like you to know that you are currently listening to a Hispanic woman who is married to a black man. Yeah. This is our podcast. Welcome. So Mm -hmm. if you're racist, you already fucked up. You're also listening to a literally white trash white girl who also does not condone your racism and thinks that you're a piece of shit. And it's part and Hispanic. It's not because, yes, I am also part Hispanic. I'm also part Native American. So, yeah, that like, too. get the fuck out of my country. That bitch. too. Um, fuck, fuck everybody anyway. who's racist. <laughs> fuck, fuck racism. It's stupid. Don't hate other races. So, we are with Mr. P and Raul in Christine Dye's dressing room. He has a servant, Mr. P. So, he has his servant bring him two pistols from his room, wherever it is in the opera house. He tells Raul in this instance that he knows Eric and that he knew that when he saw Christine disappear, it was Eric that had done it and that he knows the opera house, but Eric knows it better than him. And he knows it better than anyone because Eric literally built the entire place. Yeah. So he gives one of the pistols to Raul. And says that Ral needs to be walking around with him during their excursion right now with the pistol up at the level of his eye, raised and ready and aimed, okay, at all times. And he's very specific about this. And Ral is like, okay. So then after he makes this clear to the Vicomte and the Vicomte agrees, he basically goes over to the big mirror in Christine Daae's dressing room and he just like opens it up. He's like, ta-da, here's a fucking secret door. And he leads Raul into the insides slash underbelly of the opera house. And it is very twisty and it is very turny shit. They find crazy shit in this adventure. They find stagehands that have been drugged. They find stagehands that have been knocked out. They, in fact, find in particular one crazy crazy encounter known as the rat catcher so this shit is fucking insane 
and I have no idea why it's in this book, but it is metal as fuck. Drugs. And so I was like, I'm going to read this. So this is the section of the novel where Raoul and Mr. P run into the rat catcher. The Persian had hardly finished speaking when a fantastic face came in sight. A whole fiery face, not only two yellow eyes. Yes, a head of fire came toward them at a man's height, but with no body attached to it. The face shed fire, looked in the darkness like a flame shaped as a man's face. Oh, said the Persian between his teeth. I have never seen this before. Pampin was not mad after all. He had seen it. What can that flame be? It is not he, but he may have sent it. Take care, take care. Your hand at the level of your eyes in heaven's name. The level of your eyes. I know most of his tricks, but not this one. Come, let us run. It is safer. Hand at the level of your eyes. And they fled down the long passage that opened before them. After a few seconds, that seemed to them like long minutes, they stopped. I'm skipping some stuff. Sorry. The Persian and Raoul could retreat no farther than where they had and flattened themselves against the wall, not knowing what was going to happen because of that incomprehensible head of fire. And especially now, because of the more intense, swarming, living, numerous sound. For the sound was certainly made up of hundreds of little sounds that moved in the darkness under the fiery face. And the fiery face came on with its noise, came level with them. And the two companions, flat against their wall, felt their hair stand on end with horror, for they now knew what the thousand noises meant. They came in a troop, hustled along in the shadow by innumerable little hurried waves, swifter than the waves that rush over the sands at high tide, little night waves foaming under the moon, under the fiery head that was like a moon. And the little waves passed between their legs, climbing up their legs irresistibly. And Raoul and the Persian could no longer restrain their cries of horror, dismay, and pain, nor could they contain to hold their hands at the level of their eyes, or continue, excuse me. Their hands went down to their legs to push back the waves, which were full of little legs and nails and claws and teeth. Yes, Raoul and the Persian were ready to faint, like Pampin and the firemen that they had come across before. But the head of fire turned around in answer to their cries and spoke to them. Don't move. Don't move. Whatever you do, don't come after me. I am the rat catcher. Let me pass with my rats. What? And the head of fire disappeared, vanished at the darkness, while the passage in front of it lit up as the result of the change which the rat catcher had made in his dark lantern. <laughs> this is simultaneously the funniest and not scariest and also probably the most scariest part of this entire fucking story because oh, yeah. disgusting. Yeah, they kept Horrible. it out of the musical for a reason. What the fuck? Why is this person here? Who is this person? Nobody fucking knows. <laughs> and it's never mentioned again. It I'm is gonna, literally never mentioned again. <laughs> I, I honestly think that parts of this story, like I have not, in all honesty, looked into the history of this story and what was happening to LaRue while it was happening. Mm -hmm. But 
based on some of the things that you've said that have that happened in this book that don't happen in the musical yes. i'm gonna go with drugs were a big factor here <laughs> because there's some wild shit that happens wild. that does not have anything to do with the the story as a whole no. they're just like no. you know what Nothing. i'm i'm really feeling ghosts right now let me throw in a ghost Yes. And then we never talk about it again. And then like he'll <laughs> you know, he'll write ten days worth of, of stories in the paper. Yes. And then ten days later he's like, you know what? It's Saturday. It hasn't again. been scary enough yet. Exactly. It's Saturday again. Let me get my heroin fix and write this story because it's eighteen eighty and what the fuck else am I doing? So I'm already high on gas fumes because I live my entire life inside. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't know for sure what was going on in Gaston LaRue's life, but based on some of the weird, like really obscure wild turns that he takes in this book, I'm going to go with drugs were definitely a factor <laughs> because there's no other reason to put some of this stuff in, which is there's why literally the musical not a changes single it a bit, fucking reason, which we'll talk oh about God. in a minute. <laughs> There's no fucking reason for the rat catcher to be in this book. And it is why it's my favorite part of the book. <laughs> because it is so fucking dumb. It has no, no connection to anything else in the fucking plot. No, you were saying that and I was like, the fuck? What story are we in? This doesn't make any sense. This has nothing to like, do with what happened. For fucking sure. He threw this in because he's like, this is a fucking gothic horror story, bitch. Absolutely. I'm going to scare the shit out of everyone. I'm going to have a big tidal wave of rats come and like try to eat all of your fucking feet. Like he was writing for the like 3D movie watching experiences that you get when you go to like Disneyland or whatever and watching like Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Like, he was like, I'm going to send them a big-ass wave of rats with a big-ass floating firehead that is, like... In all honesty, is terrifying. (sighs) No, for sure. If I was down in a fucking sewer and I could see nothing at all except a floating head of fire and a huge fucking wave of squeaking and ticking fucking rats that were fucking running around all oh my god i would probably die i would probably die just of terror alone it's ghost rider mixed with willard (laughs) in a in a story and i don't need either one of those neither and they have nothing they have no connection to the story that's being told yes because i've already forgotten i've already forgotten completely about raul and christine while we worry about these fucking rats and this flaming head guy who is this guy why are there rats what is happening not a single person knows except apparently gaston larue um so that was the rat catcher you're welcome anyway after that happens and fucking Raul and mr p obviously die a thousand deaths because gross and then they come back to life again and are like i have no idea what just happened i think i had a stroke and let's just move on um (laughs) they they keep going and eventually what happens is they end up uh at a dead end trapped in this mirrored room and this mirrored room mr p immediately knows is a room made by eric This is a spot where Mr. P goes into a little bit more depth about Eric's background. So Mr. P 
in the past somehow saved Eric's life. It's implied in these stories that Eric was at one point sentenced to death in Tehran and that it was Mr. P's job to see that Eric was executed. But instead of doing that, he let Eric live as long as Eric promised him that he didn't do any more of the types of murders that he used to do when they knew each other in the Middle East and in Asia, etc. So after we hear from Mr. P here, he's giving his own background now that when the chandelier incident happened earlier, Mr. P tried to find Eric down in the underground lake and he almost drowned because Eric has like essentially like a trap that like coaxes people into the water. But Eric saves him because at the last minute, Eric realizes that it's Mr. P and not, not some rando. And he's basically like, what the fuck are you doing here? Buzz off, basically. And he tells Mr. P that the chandelier actually wasn't even him. He says the chandelier was an accident. So make of that what you will. Mr. P isn't convinced. Uh, but he like has nothing else to go on. So later on, when he sees Christine has been taken off by Eric, he tried to follow him the last time that that happened. When she got taken, the chandelier fell and then she got taken, right? The chandelier fell. Eric's like, that wasn't me. When Mr. P saw that Eric had also taken Christine, he's trying to follow him. Eric was on to him that whole time and he was not pleased and he eventually just stops him and is like what what the fuck are you doing and mr p is like hey i'm making sure that you are not like fucking christine up like you promised me eric and eric is like you're barking up literally the wrong tree you have no idea what you're talking about she's in love with me she loves me and mr p is like "Mm," skeptical (laughs) sus but Eric convinces Mr. P to leave him alone by saying, listen, I will let Christine out and she's going to come back to me after I let her out of her own free will because she loves me. Will that convince you? And Mr. P is like, yeah, obviously. Like if that happens, you are completely right. And I'm sorry, Eric. And Eric is like, all right, cool. So that's what's going to happen then. So this is why Mr. P never interceded in the matters again until this night when she was abducted again. Because he learned essentially through sneaking around that she loved Raoul too and all of Raoul's and hers business and that he knew that if Eric ever learned that she didn't actually love him, that he essentially might fucking snap. And so when she was abducted tonight, Mr. P was like, oh, fuck, I think he's finally figured it out. So anyway, we are back in the mirror torture room. The reason that Mr. P knows that this is Eric's room is because it is a replica of a torture room that he knew Eric had once made in a foreign country to entertain the sultana of that country. So we learn here as well that the hand at the level of your eyes thing is because of what Eric has titled, trigger warning racism, the Punjab lasso. So the way that Eric has made his own essential way of making a noose where it's really fucking difficult to get out of it if you're ensnared in it, unless you have your hands up here, 
And so it doesn't close completely around your neck. So that's why the whole like hand at the level of your eyes thing happens. So they are listening in this mirror room. They hear Eric somewhere, Raul and Mr. P do. Eric threatens when they're listening, they can hear what he's saying now when they like find the closest wall. They hear Eric threatening that unless Christine agrees to marry him, he will kill both him, Christine, and everyone in the opera house. And then he leaves because someone is calling at one of his doors. Whoever it is, is likely going to fall into the same trap that Mr. P almost did that one time when he was going across the lake and almost drowned, etc. So Eric leaves to like make sure he doesn't accidentally kill someone. And so when he leaves, Raoul and Mr. P call out to Christine through the walls. She can hear them and responds. And they learn that she's tied up because she tried to kill herself by banging her head repeatedly against the fucking walls at one point. So Eric has tied her up at this point. So she can't help them. But she knows that there is a door that does not lead to the rest of the house. And that door obviously has to be the door that leads to wherever they are because she could hear them. And she knows that there is a key. So she says she's going to try to convince Eric to untie her and that when that happens, she can try and get the key. When he comes back, she does convince him to untie her, but she's caught trying to catch the key and open the door. And now when he catches her, he's hella sus. So he turns on the lights in the room where Raoul and Mr. P are and is talking to Christine. Raoul and Mr. P can't see them, but Eric and Christine start talking as if there's a window here so that she can look through and see them. And Eric forces Christine to look in the window to make sure that there is no one in that extra room. Christine lies and says no uh, and comes down from the window, but Eric can clearly tell that she's lying. So the Persian and Raoul realize suddenly when all of this is happening that once the lights got turned on, it started getting very hot in this room. Too hot. Way, way too fucking hot. And it's going to be a problem soon. So Eric knocks Christine out they hear this happen and Eric drags her away. Now Raul and Mr. P are just, they don't even care about trying to pretend that they're not there. They realize that they're in a room that is supposed to essentially be like a, like an oven basically. And so they're baking and dying in this heat in this like torture room forest. Remember it's built with mirrors. So they're getting hotter and hotter. They have no fucking water. They're hallucinating they're here for hours at one point finally mr p finds the trap door in the floor and he opens it underneath them is a very dark cellar and in that cellar they find barrels they think that it's water at first and they're like oh fucking finally because they are literally about to die of dehydration but it's not water it's gunpowder and this is when Mr. P finally realizes what Eric meant earlier when he threatened Christine that he'd kill everyone in the opera house, that he really meant it. And this was how he was going to do it. 
Eric meant to kill everyone in that opera house by using essentially explosives to bring the entire building down. So they go back up into the torture room, but now the torture room is dark again. And Christine is back in the room and they can hear her, but they can't see her, but they can hear that Eric is giving her a directive to choose by 11 today, whether or not she's going to be with him or whether or not everyone is going to die, essentially. So he's here waiting for her to choose. She has the choice of two levers. One lever will blow everyone up and one lever says, I'll marry you, Eric, and everything will be fine. Christine basically says, fuck these levers. I agree. I'll marry you, Eric. I'll do it. I'm not going to touch one of the levers. I say yes. I'm not going to fucking touch one of these. I'm not going to play a game. I say yes. So just save them and not don't kill everyone. Let's be done with it. Initially, Eric tries to drown Raoul and Mr. P. He uses the water that was a mechanism to douse the explosives. So Mr. P. blacks out at this point. And he comes to in a sitting room of Eric's underground house. He sees in the room that Raoul is asleep on another like couch. Christine is here too, and she seems fine. Eric is taking care of all of them. Mr. P is hella weak and is like WTF, very sus. Christine is ignoring everything that is going on. Eric says Christine is his wife now, apparently, while Mr. P was blacked out. So Mr. P blacks out again. (laughs) And he wakes up in his own room, in his own house, not in the opera house. And he's like, literally WTF. He learns after he's woken up here that Raoul has still not been found and Philippe, the Comte de Chagny, is dead. Oh, shit. Philippe, the Comte de Chagny, was found in an alley near the opera house. The Persian knows suddenly when he hears this, he goes, that's who was knocking at the door that night. It must have been Philippe when we were down there and Eric went to have to go to try and save someone from drowning. That was probably Philippe. So now Mr. P is furious and scared, but there's literally nothing he can do. He has no idea what to do now. He has no idea where anyone is, etc. Then Eric comes and visits Mr. P at his own house outside of the fucking opera house. And Mr. P is like, WTF, Eric says he is dying. He's like hella weak. He's like, can't even like hold himself up basically. And he says, I'm dying because I love Christine so much. And he tells Mr. P what has happened that Mr. P doesn't already know. So basically he tells Mr. P what has happened since he's been blacking out. Apparently, you know, Raoul was chloroformed, obviously, and that's why he was asleep. And that was the same thing that he was doing to Mr. P. And while Mr. P was also released, Raoul was still being chloroformed, basically, and just kept in one of Eric's dungeons. And Eric swears that it was comfortable, that he wasn't being tortured or anything, just sleeping. And when Eric is alone with Christine, he lifts his mask to kiss her on her forehead. 
And she eventually kisses Eric back on his forehead. And then she kisses him on his lips. And Eric has never kissed anyone, including his own mother, because apparently his mother would run away if he tried to show her any affection. So when she does this, he is so overcome with emotion and feelings that he has never felt before that he feels essentially his body going into shock, basically. And he cries and Christine is crying with him. She, you know, is holding his hand and saying things, you know, like poor unhappy Eric and is very obviously sympathetic to him. And he says essentially one of the iconic lines of the novel that she reduces him to a dog ready to die for her. So he sets Christine free and he sets Ralph free and he tells her that she should marry Ralph and he makes Christine promise that she'll visit him on his death day uh, on the day that he dies and she will return on that day the ring that he gave her. Now, in the present again, he makes Mr. P promise that after he dies, Mr. P will go to the newspaper and report his death um, because he's going to die soon uh, and he wants it to be commemorated. So sometime later, when it is actually revealed that Eric has died, Christine does return to Eric's lair. Uh, she buries him herself somewhere where, quote, he will never be found by Eric's request. And she buries his ring with her with him. And afterward in town, Gaston LaRue says that a local newspaper runs the simple note, Eric is dead, meaning the Persian obviously followed through. So Christine and Raoul, who finds out that Eric has killed Raoul's older brother, uh, they elope together and they never return, essentially. And the epilogue pieces together like some bits of Eric's life. So Gaston LaRue says that this is just stuff that he couldn't piece in without things being kind of weird. So he just saved it for the epilogue. And these are just some bits and pieces from like super unverified sources, but it's what he heard. So Eric was the son of a construction business owner and he was deformed at birth. He ran away from his home. He was a native of Normandy in France and he ran away to work in fairs and in caravans and, you know, freak shows. Essentially, he schooled himself in the arts. He was in the circus. He travels across Europe and Asia. Eventually, he finds himself in Persia and in Turkey, essentially. And so he makes a name for himself there, essentially building like trick palaces and being like a court gesture, essentially, for royalty in Persia and Turkey. And eventually he comes back to France and he starts his own construction business like his father. He is eventually subcontracted to work on the foundations of the Palais Garnier. And Eric, because he is literally building it himself, he discreetly builds himself all of his fucking tunnels and 
you know, extra secret passageways and his lair. He builds his everything he fucking needs to be a quote unquote ghost of the opera. So none of it is obviously ghost-like. It is just him. And it's explained that he, because of all of the stuff that he learned as an artist, as a performer, he has just become a master of throwing his voice places and all of that good stuff. That's the end of the novel. So (laughs) some things before I hand it over to Katie. Carlotta was actually based on a true person. She was based on Mademoiselle Carvalho. And she was, of course, a famous opera singer. And she was noted for her, like, pure tones, essentially, and very, like, precise singing. She was one of the most famous French singers of her day. And she you know, was very pushy. She would often encourage composers to write their scores in a way that would showcase her, basically. Uh, So she was basically well known for keeping audiences attentive and for making them come back over and over again, much like Carlotta. The novel itself is partly inspired by, as I mentioned in the beginning, historical events at the Paris Opera during the 19th century. It is also based in part on an apocryphal tale of this quote-unquote historical record thing concerning the use of a former ballet pupil's skeleton in Carl Maria von uh, Weber's 1841 production of uh, Der Freischutz. So this is like when Joseph Bouquet and his like body is found that night. It's insinuated that Gaston Leroux kind of used that in the opening as kind of inspiration to open his horror story. Obviously, the setting of the Phantom of the Opera came from an actual Paris opera house. He had, according to him, all records show Gaston LaRue heard rumors about this opera house and he believed that they were true, that the Palais Garnier rumors about the ghost were very real and uh, built in some part on real events. And so the underground lake that he wrote about where Eric builds his lair, essentially, is actually accurate to this opera house. It is still used there for firefighters training and practicing like swimming in the dark, essentially, in France. The event of the infamous chandelier crashing is also apparently based on a true story. And he defended all of the rumors that he was pulling on to write this novel and continued to espouse their truthness even to his death, essentially, not even on his deathbed. So... Essentially, the Phantom of the Opera is because Gaston LaRue had heard a fucking ghost story and he really fucking believed it was true. And so he was like, I'm going to fucking write a story all about it. 
And so he tells the reader, like in the prologue, like I mentioned, that he's done all this research to prove that the ghost is based on events, that whether or not the ghost is a real ghost or a person, who knows, but it's all, he's not shooting the shit when he talks about the sources that he got information from. Some fun trivia, the serialized version of Phantom of the Opera actually contained an entire chapter that does not appear in the novel version now, and it has never been reprinted ever, so we will never get it back. And it is titled the L'Enveloppe Magique. So it was something to do with probably the managers like trying to figure out how <laughs> the opera ghost stole their money, even though they were trying their damn hardest to like keep it in their pockets. And obviously, as we all know, uh, Phantom of the Opera was adapted into various stage and film adaptations. Lon Chaney is in a very notorious 1925 one. Probably the most famous is Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1986 musical. And last but not least, Christine Daae is also, like Carlotta, uh, based on a true person named Christina Nielsen, or the uh, Contest de Casa Miranda, who lived from August 20th, 1843 to November 20th, 1921. She was actually a Swedish operatic soprano, which again falls in line with Christine's characterization and noted like birth and stuff from the novel. Essentially, when she died, she died in Vaxjo, Sweden in 1921. And she actually never made gramophone recordings of her own voice, despite the fact that it was something that was open to her to be able to do in her later years. She just never did it. So we have no, we have no recordings of her and how she sounded, even though we could have. And that is my portion of Phantom of the Opera. All right. You're welcome. Okay. Like Sam said, Phantom of the Opera <laughs> has been produced many, many times over many different mediums. And everything that has ever been made of Phantom of the Opera is based off this book that she just so beautifully described to us by Gaston LaRue. Yes. So eventually, after Gaston LaRue's initial printing went out, uh, many, many movies were made. And then in 1986... Andrew Lloyd Webber comes along, and anyone who doesn't know Andrew Lloyd Webber, first, shame on you. How dare you? But how? he. <laughs> but, You're wrong. You do know him. <laughs> but but to help you, if you aren't aware of his name, um, he is essentially the Lin Manuel Miranda of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, for um, sure. He's basically the king of musicals in the 80s oh my- and 90s. It- if you are someone who likes musicals, you absolutely know at least one fucking musical written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, absolutely. At least so, a thousand percent. So before I jump into the movie, I'm going to give you a little bit of background or just an intro, I guess, to Andrew Lloyd Webber's works. Andrew Lloyd Webber is the man responsible for not only the musical of Phantom of the Opera, but also the musicals Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and Cats which fucking like 
is one of the longest running musicals ever on Broadway. Yeah. Like the man has done so many different musicals. It would be astounding to me if you listened to musicals and hadn't heard at least one piece of music. You have. By I him. fully believe you have. You just didn't know that it was him that wrote it. Yes. Like that's so it. a little into my background, I guess, on Andrew Lloyd Webber. I was in high school when this movie came out. And before this movie came out, when I was, I think, a sophomore, we played an Andrew Lloyd Webber medley when I was in band. Heads up, if you haven't listened to any of this podcast, I'm a huge band nerd. So Mm -hmm. that's what I did in high school. That was my thing. (laughs) So we played an Andrew Lloyd Webber medley which had, you know, memory from cats and Jesus Christ, the main uh, theme from Jesus Christ Superstar and like five songs from Phantom of the Opera because it's arguably his best and most well-known musical. Hands fucking down. I will fucking fight someone to the death. And I am someone who performed in cats okay like i have an appreciation for cats that not many people do because they very justifiably listened (laughs) to uh, cats once yeah cats are like why the fuck does it exist and one fair but two also for some reason people are just like it's a fucking fantastic it it is a masterpiece no it fan of the opera is number fucking one yes (laughs) So basically, that was my introduction to Phantom of the Opera, was playing a medley of Phantom music and other Andrew Lloyd Webber songs when I was like a sophomore in high school. When I was a junior, uh, my school did a thing called a Pops concert, which a lot of high schools do, where rather than playing the traditional classical music literature, you get to play more popular stuff. So you play things from musicals or from movies or whatever, and a couple of really good friends of mine sang the theme to the Phantom of the Opera and they crushed it. And I had never really heard it before because this again was before the movie came out. And all I had ever, the only time I had ever heard it was in that medley we had played. And I was like, Oh shit, they're playing that song from that medley. Like that's really fucking cool. And they, they crushed it. Shout out to Anthony and Jessica. Like you guys did great flash forward to I don't know, six months, maybe six months or so after that concert happened, this movie came out in January of 2005. It was directed by uh, Joel Schumacher, who, if you don't know who Joel Schumacher is, also shame on you, but he <laughs> he's really big in musicals, specifically musicals to film movies. Yeah, so so adaptations. He, yeah, music musical adaptations. Video. Um, he did not only the Phantom of the Opera adaptation, but he also helped and was a huge part of getting The Wiz adapted into a movie with Michael Jackson and Diana Ross. He was the director for St. Elmo's Fire and The Lost Boys. And yeah, I forgot even... St. Elmo's Fire is him. Yeah, and even yeah. though everybody hated it, except for me, apparently, he was also in charge of Batman and Robin which everybody deems as the worst Batman, but that's fine. Okay, hold on, though. Batman and and Robin is the one that has, um, I'm so sorry. George Clooney. Yeah, and Uma Thurman, right? Yeah. Okay, maybe it's just that we were the kids that were present when that one came out, but that's my favorite one, too. I fucking love it. No, it's... So, okay, so Joel Schumacher did Batman Forever, which was the one before it, which is 
heavily lauded as one of the best Batman movies that's ever been made. And then he went on to make Batman and Robin with George Clooney. And there were just a lot of problems, like inconsistencies to the comics with that movie. For sure. Like if, if, see, when we were kids, B and you went in without any prior knowledge really of Batman. Like we had kind of watched the other movies, but hadn't. Hadn't understood them. Hadn't like, yeah, hadn't latched on to all these important facts about the movie about the character of batman that were important and then when batman and robin came out everyone basically shat themselves because of the way that he changed the characters around a little bit and the way that the costuming was and the way that each character's demeanor kind of was it's like it's not what it was in the comics it presented well as a movie but not as a movie of a comic i guess yeah 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 yeah. yeah. now you know what that's a really fair description of it it's a good movie it's not a good comic book to movie adaptation that's fair and that's truly and there are a lot of those uh as we've kind of entered the age of comic book movies there have been a lot of those in the past but batman and robin definitely is lauded by comic book fans as one of the worst and basically (laughs) everybody blames it on joel schumacher so Mm. after the shit show that was batman and robin in all of those people's eyes eventually he made his way back to musicals and he directed this 2004 version it came out in december uh, i think it actually came out in 2000 like near 2005 yeah. it came out december 2004 so basically the christmas weekend prior to new year's 2005 and he crushed it joel schumacher knocked this out of it's the park so this good. movie so good. is incredible if you have never seen phantom of the opera live if you have never listened to phantom of the opera if you even if you have if you've listened to phantom of the opera this is a wonderful stage to screen depiction of the play now i will say there were as i was watching it i am very familiar with the musical um for anyone who's listened to this podcast at all knows that I majored in music uh, and musicals are kind of my jam. So I listen to them a lot. The difference between the stage musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber and the right. movie musical by Joel Schumacher and Andrew Lloyd Webber does change a bit of things right. to make it more presentable to the audience, to the average person who isn't. Yeah you know, fully involved in the musical and just to make it more pleasing to your, to the eyes and the ears. And to be able to enc- encapsulate the true full story, but with a time frame that is good for a movie. Like yeah. people will sit for nearly three hours for a fucking Lord of the Rings movie, but for a musical that is a standalone fucking movie, not a lot of people are going to sit there for that. No. So for sure, yeah. yeah. For They for definitely musicals, adapted some stuff it, for that. It's honestly a damn shame because Yeah, it truly is. Because stage musicals, like the typical runtime of a stage musical, any stage musical, not just Phantom of the Opera, but any stage musical, is roughly three hours. If you yes. include every song, including the uh, entrance music by the orchestra and the yeah. walkout music by the orchestra from start to finish so, it's like, yeah, three hours inter- intermediary and, yeah. music that, and like, the intermission music scenes. all of that it's three hours solid and it's great shit 
But for movies, for whatever reason, a lot of musical movies choose to take out a bit of that just to bring it down to around two and a half hours. And that seems to appease movie audiences a lot better than it does yes. musical audiences. Like yes. me as a music fan, I would gladly sit through three hours. Like if, if exactly. Hamilton if Hamilton was three hours or four hours or five hours, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to sit there and right. watch it. But it's, yeah, for but sure. to the average viewer who's never sat through a musical or isn't sure if they're going to like a musical because it's a lot of singing and dancing and stuff like two and a half hour, hours is pretty much your max. Right. So with this movie musical, they didn't really stray too far from the actual musical. There were some slight changes that were more for visual effect that they changed that they got to change in the in the movie that they can't change in the show because they want you to see all of these crazy things from the stage and it has to be over the top right. so that the people sitting way in the fuck up at the top can see exactly. can understand what's happening on the stage right. um one of the biggest changes that they made in this movie is actually the graveyard scene which sam already talked about a little bit so there's a scene uh, a little more than halfway through the movie probably two-thirds of the way through the movie where yeah. Chris close Chris to the climax not quite the climax yeah. kind of like a pseudo climax yeah so i'm only talking about this to kind of give you an idea of the things that have changed between the musical and the movie so in the m- musical and in the book christine Daye goes to and the movie, I guess. Christine Daye goes to the graveyard of her father and she's pleading to her father, you know, help me, what do I do? Make this, help me make this decision. I don't understand what's happening. You know, you sent me the angel of music or whatever. And in the book, like Sam described, Raoul sees this, kind of sees this shadowy figure and is trying to follow it. And then he just like blacks out and doesn't know what the fuck's happening. <laughs> In the musical, Raul sees the phantom and confronts him. And then the phantom throws fucking fireballs at him, like magic fireballs <laughs> out of nowhere and throws fireballs at Raul. And then Raul blacks out and doesn't understand what the fuck happened. Okay. Now the movie was like, forget all that blackout bullshit. We're not doing we're any just, of that. We're just, we're going to we're gonna make this up <laughs> a sword fight because it's the 1870s in france and that's what makes fucking sense absolutely <laughs> so fucking so i will say the movie that i watched the 2004 version of the movie definitely takes its liberties gets rid of all of the quote-unquote magic that the phantom uses right. and makes it more realistic kind of yeah they, they get rid of all the weird fantastical like Ooh, it's a creepy haunted theater idea. And you is it a real person? Yeah, is it and not? but you're aware the entire time while you're watching it that this is a real person um, that you're dealing with who is trying to change the situation around him and kind of affect the how events play out. Okay, so to the movie. It's quite a bit different from the book, but also alarmingly the same. I will say <laughs> I will say the general plot of the story is the same as the book. They did hold to the real plot. Christine Daye is a chorus girl. She is being um I don't know, shadowed 
by this angel, quote-unquote angel of music, aka the Phantom, and he's teaching her to be a more powerful singer, and eventually his love for her is going to push him to the brink of insanity and convince the rest of the opera house to give her the starring role. So that's the basic story of Phantom of the Opera. Right. Where we, where we set the scene, where we, we, we begin and do the story for sure. Now the big change between Andrew Lloyd Webber's version and Gaston uh, LaRue's version is the timing of everything. So what Gaston LaRue did was tell the story from several different points of view. You're getting it from the actors, the other actors in the show and the stagehands. You're getting it from Raul. You're getting it from the people who own the theater. You're getting it and then retold again through Christine, like her retelling of the events. And yes, the there way- is a lot of going back and like, this is what I was doing during that event. This is what I was doing during that event, yes. et cetera, et cetera. And the thing I really like about the musical is that um, Andrew Lloyd Webber did a very good job of taking all of the events that happen in the novel and placing them in chronological order and telling the story that way, rather than yes. here's Raul's part, here's him three days ago and what happened. Here's Christine's part and here's what happened to her three days ago. There's not all of that jumping back and forth. It's very much like, okay, here's what happened on Monday from everybody's point of view. Here's what happened on Tuesday from everybody's point of view. So Andrew Lloyd Webber basically took the story that was Gaston LaRue's and put it all into a a more succinct version. One timeline that begins here, ends over here. Yes, one timeline, and then told it through music. So the Phantom of the Opera literally takes place at an opera house. So the entire story is done at this beautiful French opera house. And Andrew Lloyd Webber was like, hey, wouldn't it be great if this story that takes place at an opera house actually sounded like opera? opera?" Hell yes. So It's gorgeous. (laughs) It is, no, it's literally like, and I say this as someone who understands why people in modern day audiences can't, I I talked about it at the beginning of this episode. I understand why modern audiences have a hard time contextualizing older stories. I fully fucking do. This is one of those experiences that the music that Andrew Lloyd Webber fucking created for this musical is transcendent. It's, it's gorgeous. It is haunting every single moment of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera musical is like almost a religious experience of listening to the music of the instruments and then listening to the songs Mm -hmm. and the words associated with them that the actors and actresses are singing. It is one of the most complete and comprehensive musicals that is in existence bar none to date. Like, and I say that as someone who fully fucking knows, I had to fucking learn about it. I went to a 
theater college my first year of college and then I did an you know an extensive fucking literature review in my college days and I fully fucking lay this down and I will fight anyone on it any day it is one of the top five best musicals that has ever existed like fully um I don't know that I'd go that far but it is very good and for for anyone who feels like they just don't understand opera which is a lot of people like that's including people who are in music people who are in yeah. musicals you know there's now, a, yeah for sure opera is it is a whole nother level it's usually it's in a different language most of the time it's incredibly hard to understand the the plot and everything is very intricate Andrew Lloyd Webber does a really good job with this musical in taking the operas that they're doing in the show that the theater is putting on in the show and making it first off in English and secondly able to understand so you don't in this show you don't ever get full huge performances of any one opera you know you're following characters who work in an opera house over the course of an opera season so they're doing several different operas and different songs from different operas that fit into the tone of the play of the musical the phantom of the opera so it is a bit meta there's like opera within a musical and all this for sure yeah it is definitely i'm a performer performing a thing but also i'm a performer performing a thing performing a thing yes yeah but as far as opera goes this is the most American opera you will ever hear. And if you've never listened to opera or feel like you can't stand to listen to opera or don't want to try to listen to opera, I highly recommend giving Phantom of the Opera a shot because there is a lot of opera themes and opera ideas that Andrew Lloyd Webber did a really good job of putting into this um, musical and film that make the transition to opera a little bit easier not it's not just like oh i'm watching hamilton and we're like rapping about you know the happenings of the start of the country opera is very complex and very intricate and there's it's a lot (laughs) to say the least every single every single word is crafted every single word every single syllable of the experience from start to finish it has not been like okay we're gonna have a song and then we're just gonna have dialogue and then we're gonna have some intricate like fading out songs and then we're gonna have some music where we move scene no every single moment of the experience from start to finish is one continuous crafted work of art yes if you have not seen this film um i highly recommend watching it with subtitles on because the opera specifically the op the operatic parts so because this movie kind of shifts in and out between opera and regular musical the parts where they're singing opera where uh la carlotta is singing or even christine daye where she's singing her uh operatic aria Those parts are kind of hard to catch exactly what she's saying, what they're saying, because they are so high up there in up in the upper register. And And let's be fucking real. Minnie Driver 
just like defies human auditory yeah uh, capabilities yes. <laughs> yes so if you if you have any interest in understanding what they're talking about in those songs i highly recommend watching this with uh subtitles on so that you understand what's happening because you will miss things if you aren't listening with subtitles or watching with subtitles because there's just so much happening and it's so high and so hard to hear okay to the movie and how it makes it a bit different from the book There are quite a bit of differences, but it's good. So they change the way that the story is told in that the movie starts out in 1919, which is way after the fact, after all this stuff had happened. Even later than when the book was published. Yes. Okay. So the movie takes, starts taking place in 1919 at an auction at the opera house. So we see two characters sitting at an auction bidding over this little brass monkey figurine that plays uh, the song Masquerade. And it's like clapping its little symbols to the song Masquerade. And these two characters that we see are bidding on it. And the auctioneer names each character. So we find out that the male character who is bidding on it is the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny. Yes. yes. So it's Raoul, but he's old. He's like in his 60s at this point. Mm -hmm. And he is bidding on the small monkey. And there is an old woman there who is older than Raoul, who is uh, Madame Giri, who was essentially Christine's stepmother, basically, like her foster mom. So both of them are there at this auction And they are bidding on this monkey. They bid on the monkey. She gives up on the bid and gives it to Raul. So he gets the monkey. The next place in the auction comes for the broken chandelier. And they bid on this giant broken chandelier that the auctioneer says, you know, it's been redone. It's been rewired. It's now electric. It's no longer gas. It's all these things. And the bidding starts. And as the bidding starts, the movie transitions from black and white 1919 into full color 1870 opera house. Beautiful. It's the fucking uh, electric guitars, fucking whale. It's one of the most fantastic transitions that exists in filmmaking. Truly. That I have ever seen. Like they take this busted ass on the floor broken chandelier and they eventually like raise it up into the sky into this gorgeous opera house that Mm -hmm. it's just fantastic so here is where our true story starts in 1870 we have Carlata, the fucking diva soprano bitch played by Minnie Driver (laughs) who is singing but clearly Fabulous. nobody likes her singing in the entire right. theater everyone is it's like, like whatever it whatever your like caricature of like the most extreme like stereotype of opera is Mariah that's mini driver but turn it up but turn it up a thousand percent <laughs> like For she sure. just like fucking nails it so hard for sure Minnie Driver is incredible in this movie. I will say her ability to sing 
high is incredible. Her ability to play the just absurd character of Madame Carlotta is incredible. She does a fantastic job. But Madame Carlotta is singing and, you know, the regular people in the theater, the people who are like cleaning the the chairs and everything and the people backstage who, you know, all the stagehands, they're like shoving cotton in their ears. They like can't stand to listen to her. (laughs) And she's singing along and out of nowhere in the middle of their rehearsal, these three dudes walk in like onto the stage, which that's a fucking theater no-no. If you've never truly, been in theater, truly, 100%, you do not ever interrupt a rehearsal like that. But these three rich fucks just like walk onto the stage and they're like, hey, I'm the old owner. I'm giving it up. I'm selling it to these two dudes. They're the new owners. Here it is. And Madame Carlotta, being the diva that she is, is like, um, the fuck? We were in a rehearsal. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. Bye. Which you would it's think so is good. like super bitchy and super absurd. But honestly. No, it's actually fully justified in this instance. In, in this <laughs> one totally instance, her, her absurdity is 100% justified. Because if that happened in any other rehearsal setting for any musical or any play or anything, everyone would be like, uh, the fuck? I'm going on a fucking 20. Like, bye. I'll you? be back. Yes. I don't give a fuck about you. I'm out. Absolutely the fuck not. <laughs> yeah. So basically, the old owner is going over the kind of, the stuff about the theater that the new owners need to know. Introductions, you know, here's your male star, here's your uh, orchestra leader here's um mini driver's character like here's everybody that Everyone. you need to know here's la carlotta like oh but now she says she won't perform because you interrupted her rehearsal and then they have to grovel at her feet basically because she's a diva and right. that's what they do so they grovel and grovel and grovel and they convince her to perform alone for them like right on stage at that moment uh, for some big fundraiser or something. some attention. Yeah, she loves the attention. So they, they're they having like a fundraiser or something, some type of ball where she's supposed to perform because she's the star. And they want her to, you know, give them a little taste of what she's going to perform later. So she starts to perform and I don't know, one of the men like stops and talks to the other. And she's like, the fuck? I'm out. <laughs> So she refuses to perform and the rich dudes are freaking the fuck out. Like, what do I do? What are we going to do? We need someone to perform at this ball tonight. Like that it's our fundraiser or whatever. Like we need to show all of our patrons. This is what's happening. And everyone's freaking out. And right then they introduce their patron who is the Vicomte Raoul. And everyone's like, oh, damn, look at Raul. He kind of cute. And Christine is like, oh, shit, it's Raul. I know him. Like, we go way back. And she's telling her, like, sister friend, basically, like, now we had that romance. You remember that guy that I told you about from when we were kids? Like, me and him were like this. (laughs) But then my dad died and I had to, like, leave. So we We weren't like this anymore. Um, So... That's a big difference from the book. Christine automatically recognizes Raul. And she's actually 
the one who recognizes him first in the book. Raul doesn't recognize Christine until she has a solo, which happens in the movie as well. But Christine already has acknowledged that she knows who this is. Right. Right. Okay. Since Carlotta has left, uh, Madame Geary, who is essentially like a voice dance teacher at the opera house, she's basically in control of all of the... um, the background, the, people. the core, yeah. the chorus, basically, she's like, oh, Christine can handle this. Like, let, let's give Christine a shot because I know for sure Christine can handle the part of Carlotta. Like, let's give her a shot. She'll do it for your fundraiser. And then we can go back to whatever you guys you want. want. But if Carlotta's not going to perform, like, let's have Christine do it. So Christine is like, okay, sure. Why not? Like this is my one shot. I've been taking all these lessons from the angel of music. Like I'm down. And the guys are like, who's your lesson teacher? Like, why should we let you random chorus girl do it? She's like, um, I don't know his name, but he's the angel of music. And I'm really fucking good. Like, listen to me. And then she busts out in this like (laughs) little tiny part of the thing. And they're like, all right, you're in. You're, you're the fundraiser girl. Okay. So They skip forward to the fundraiser. Christine is singing Think of Me, which is this beautiful soprano uh, aria. And she's all by herself in front of hundreds of what would be patrons, I assume, to the opera house who are helping fund the opera. And everyone is just blown away. Like, this girl was just in the chorus. Like, are you fucking kidding me? She's doing so well. Meanwhile... Raul's rich ass is up in a box and he's like, oh, damn, that's that Christine girl that I knew when I was a kid. She looking fine. She could sing. That's it. We we in this. I'm in this. Let's let's go. And he is immediately (laughs) smitten and he starts filling in the parts of her song with his own like. In the musical, or long when you ago, it yeah. seems so long ago. Yes. Oh, sorry. You, Don't you even get me started. When you hear this on the soundtrack, it's sung kind of as a duet. It's Raul and Christine going back and forth. But know that in the show and in the movie, they are not anywhere near each other. It's Christine singing on stage to hundreds of people, and Raul filling in the parts where Christine is not singing with his own lyrics, pining for Christine. So he yeah. is basically like shit i forgot that i loved you like let's let's do this so he recognizes christine as this girl that he had grown up with and we find out through this song and through the next couple of minutes of the movie that the reason that they had grown up knowing each other is because her dad mr daye was this world-renowned classical violinist and he had promised her upon his death that he would send the angel of music to teach her basically to keep her going with the power of music that had been granted upon him. Basically he was magnificent, a magnificent musician and he had left that to her basically. So Christine being a naive child um, had basically taken this to heart and had understood that the person who was teaching her at the time, her mystery vocal coach, basically, was the angel of music. She understood it as, the angel of music is my father. Come to me right. to teach me music so that I can be 
the best musician that I he can possibly be. He told me be. this was what was going to happen. Yes. Uh, a little background here for anyone who's like, why the fuck would a woman believe that shit? Well, Christine is not exactly what I would call a woman at this point. This is taking place in 1870. Yeah, she's Christine a fucking child, basically. is 16 at most. She was yes. born, we don't, they don't ever actually give her age, uh, like where in 1870 this takes place, but they yeah. do show her date of birth at one point, which is 1854. So she is either 15 slash about to be 16 at this point. So like, yes. take with that what you will, like, She's kind of an adult, I guess, but her ideas... She's a fucking child. She's a child. She's 1,000% a fucking yeah, child. Yeah, she's a child, and her ideas of, you know, the angel of music coming to help her or whatever are all these just fantastical ideas brought through her heartbreak of her father dying. So that's what she believes is happening to her. Her vocal coach is the angel of music, Raul is her childhood love who for whatever reason they couldn't be together at the time right. they don't specify in the musical that it's because Christine was poor no. or a pauper or anything like that like they do in the book right. it's just like yeah things didn't work Suddenly, out he was just gone yeah it's well, it been was a like, long time since I saw you well they basically explain it as Christine's dad died and then she leaves where right. she was with Raul and then she lives at the opera house from now on like she's just an opera child and she lives at the opera house and this has been her life since she left Raul so Raul is in love with her and this is where controversial opinions of mine come into play where Raul is a fucking stalker and <laughs> update so is the phantom they're both fucking oh, they are both pedophilic stalkers christine yes. is 16 years old and like owning it okay like think back for anyone who was alive 20 years ago like christine is essentially charlotte church okay remember her fucking like operatic sensation she's only 13 she can sing all these crazy high notes She's a genius. And everybody else is like, oh, damn, she's looking kind of fine. Except she's 13. Like, how fucking dare you? <laughs> okay. And Raul. It's so true, though. It's and so the true. Phantom both fall madly in love with her. Not only her personality, but her specifically her voice and her musical ability. And they will not give, neither one of them will concede at all, like, maybe Christine doesn't want this. Like, maybe this isn't in Christine's best interest or any of that. They're just like, nah, I'm here. I'm pissing on this girl's leg. She's my property. Like, I put my scent on her. She's mine. That's that's all you need to know about Phantom of the Opera. The end. That's the whole story. I'm fucking crying. Oh, my God. (laughs) So... If for some reason you don't feel like either one of these characters are stalkers or like both characters, you're not are alone. You're correct. It's very back, much pedophilia. Just go back in the and, 1880s. Yeah, go back and watch this film because you will feel differently. Like I hadn't watched this film in a long time. I've listened to the musical a bunch, uh, but I honestly have not watched this musical movie in 
I don't know, 10, 15 years. <laughs> and watching it now, I was like, this is like problematic as fuck. <laughs> You're just like, going to move in on that. You're just going to be like, oh, yeah, that's a piece of ass right there. Yes. Christine is clearly going through some mental shit. Like the For true. The angel, the quote unquote angel of music, who we later learn is the phantom of the opera or the OG, the opera ghost. He has a lot of different names. That's her teacher. And in becoming her teacher and listening to her finally sing all by herself, he has fallen in love with her and can't live without her. That's basically the rest of the story. He loves her so much that he will not let her love Raul, will not let her perform without his permission, will not let anyone else be the star of the show. It has to be Christine. He's going to do everything he can to make sure that Christine is the tops and is his, belongs to him, will only love him. Now, Raul, who you know, hasn't seen Christine since they were question mark eight, 10, 12. I don't know how they don't ever specify an age. Children. Since they were children. I mean, she's still a child. (laughs) Yes. But since they were young children, immediately falls in love with her again or remembers that he was in love with her at some point. They never in the movie, they don't ever specify like, oh, I used to be in love with her. We used to be in love. They kind of mention offhand mention like a childhood fling we had a yeah we had a childhood experience together we knew each other and now i'm just like oh shit i've seen you and now you're a woman and because we're obviously pseudo adults even though you're obviously not and i'm maybe an adult now obviously that fondness is clearly love yeah so Raul is trying to show Christine that he loves her and the Phantom is trying to prove, you know, that she belongs to him. And Christine is literally just a 16-year-old girl trapped between two grown men with no, like, visible escape. This, the rest of this movie is literally her trying to escape the clutches of one adult male to go to another adult male and trying to figure out which one she's supposed to end up with, you know, how her romantic life is supposed to end up. And she's struggling with it through the rest of the show. Her and Raul eventually become boyfriend and girlfriend. And then quickly, like in the musical, it happens instantaneously. Like there's not really a courting situation at all. They don't talk about that at all. It's like, Oh, I saw you perform. Hey, I really like you. Guess what? We engaged now. Um, And it immediately goes to an engagement. Now, Christine has been threatened and the whole opera house has been threatened at this point by the Phantom for not following his many rules. Like Sam described earlier, um, you know, they aren't paying him his due pay. They aren't leaving box five open. They aren't casting christine in the lead as they are supposed to and he threatens them with a horror which none of you have ever seen before basically yes and the owners are like nah, fuck this guy like i've never seen him i don't believe he exists we still gonna do this like madame carlotta is 
uh, or La Carlotta is our star. And they keep having to prove to Madame Carlotta that she's the star because she's a fucking diva and she's taking. Yes. And she's taking everything like just absurdly. Like she can't handle any of it. The fact that any of them are like, oh no, Christine Diade's going to be the singer. She's losing her goddamn mind. There's this fucking scene. There's this fucking part like when she, uh, after her um, think of me, like uh, solo is over. There's this part in this movie, and I remember it explicitly because it's one of my favorite parts, where, like, her little La Carlotta, sorry, excuse me, I'm drunk, in case you didn't know, because that's what this fucking podcast is, but... Yeah, same. (laughs) One of her, like, fucking, like, minions, like, comes back out, and is clearly, she's, like, sitting in her little, like... (laughs) carriage waiting for like the scoop <laughs> and her fucking menu comes up and like tells her obviously that He's like, like yeah Christine killed it her. like my and bad. she like she like turns and looks at her like husband and like grits her teeth and then just like faints and yeah. mini driver sells just the shit out of that faint no. like all of a sudden her entire body is just liquid no <laughs> mini driver so fucking crushes good. it she crushes it as la carlotta like no joke she kills it at this point in the musical basically the owners of the theater and the orchestra director are all team carlotta because that's what will appease Carlotta and convince her to perform. Basically, if they say otherwise, then Carlotta will be like, oh, well, you don't value me. I'm out. Bye. I'm not going to perform. So they have to say whatever they can to get her to convince her to perform. Uh, Meanwhile, the Phantom, who is madly in love with Christine, refuses to let anyone else perform in the lead except for Christine. So there's this big pull and fight, basically, between the directors and the Phantom of, you know, who should we take seriously? Who are we going to believe? Who? What are we going to do? In the middle of the opera season, they hold this big masquerade, which is hands down my favorite song of the Amazing. entire musical like gorgeous the harmonies in this song are incredible but there's this big masquerade ball ball that the theater holds and it includes the entire cast all the stagehands all the directors all the patrons everyone's there and they're hosting this huge masquerade and christine and raul come together of course because at this point they're to get their dating and we find out in the song that they are engaged in the true stage musical that you would go see on like Broadway, this part is sung. Unfortunately, for who the fuck knows why in this musical movie, they chose to just speak this part, which really made me upset because I really <laughs> like the sung part where they sing, where they sing, um, think of it, a secret engagement. Yeah, like right. that part is right, my right, fucking right, 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 jam. Right. And that's they, a good one, yeah. And they just spoke it, which was stupid. Bad Joel Schumacher. Bad. (laughs) But we find out that they're engaged. And they're hiding it from everyone because Christine is terrified of the Phantom. She knows that he's madly in love with her, that she's he's basically a stalker. And 
Christine doesn't want him to find out that her and Raul are engaged. And Raul's like, the fuck? Why won't you just, like, let's just fucking tell everyone. Like, who cares? And Christine's like, no, I'm trying not to get kidnapped. Like, this dude's psycho and he's in love with me and I need, we need to play this like under wraps kidnapped once before you don't fucking understand yes (laughs) i've already been kidnapped at this point in the musical she's already been kidnapped sam covered it already yes it's essentially the exact same yes she's already been kidnapped so we're not going there okay she's she's trying really hard to avoid the phantom to keep the phantom from finding out that they're engaged and guess what the Phantom shows up at the fucking ball because he's the Phantom and he's like, the fuck? Like, you guys chose to let Carlotta sing. You're not following my thing. You're not following this. You're not following this. Well, here you go. I have written an opera to be performed at the next thing that we do. And it's called Don Juan Triumphant. And if you don't perform it, I'm killing everyone, basically. And he, he shows up. He's dressed all in red. He's like looking like the devil. He's got his crazy devil mask. He's like, bitch, no. Y'all performing my Don Juan Triumph. And he throws the score super dramatically. <laughs> he walks Very- He walks to Christine and Raul, sees the ring that's on a necklace on her neck, and is like, oh, bitch, you engaged? Absolutely not. And basically threatens Christine and is like, now we're enemies. Like I loved you, but you broke my heart now. And I was, I was going to spare you, but you've betrayed me now. So now everyone's dying. Like I'm killing Raul. I'm killing Christine. I don't give a fuck. Everyone's dead. So he disappears and Raul is like the fuck. And he follows him. He jumps into the like hole in the floor that magically goes into the catacombs of France, which if you have never studied or looked into the catacombs oh of France, God. dear fucking God, like it is it legitimately is a nightmare. It's it horrific. Is, it's scary as fuck. If you are someone who loves horror, who is like me and I know is like my cousin, that stuff, the fucking Paris catacombs is some of the most haunted ass mm-hmm. scary macabre mm-hmm. fucking bullshit mm-hmm. that you'll ever fucking read about in your mm-hmm. life and mm-hmm. if i'm not mistaken it's been a while since the last time i watched as above so below holy dear god i was just gonna bring that up isn't as above so below like it starts in the catacombs right the whole movie takes place in the catacombs yes okay that's what i'm saying it's by the way, fucking if you haven't ever watched that movie, go fucking watch that movie. Holy what dear you God, doing? you're going to shit yourself. It's, it's an incredible fucking movie. But it's not even it's not even scary, really, until you're like, wait, it, it's one of those things real? that like, exactly. It's one of those things that is like it is Schrodinger's horror movie. Like, it's not scary, but it's also fucking terrifying. It is just incredibly mind-blowingly terrifying and absolutely the paris catacombs are essentially what in america if we were thinking of like 
oh, the sewers and like all of the movies that we've ever watched about people like running around in sewers in like New York City or something. Think of that, except worse, except like a thousand more feet or whatever fucking down Mm -hmm. with not actually human sculpted like perfectly round tunnels because that's not what it was but tunnels all filled with dead bodies fucking everywhere bones everywhere yep skulls everywhere this was where so many fucking dead bodies were put and just stacked yes in in at tetris it, playing tetris with fucking dead bodies yes yeah, they basically built walls the catacombs built, were they built walls out of corpses in the it's catacombs fucking insane so sorry it's okay so like sam just said paris is creepy as fuck and in the 1870s the catacombs weren't new by any means but they were much more frequented at the time than they are right now. Like the catacombs of Paris are basically like no one goes down there anymore. Um, But in 1870, they were still used as essentially a sewer system. And before that they were used as tunnels to get, you know, from one point of Paris to another without having to take surface streets. So they were very well, well used and the phantom that's where his layer was. So he had this layer down in the catacombs of Paris that he had built that had connected him to all of the the parts of Paris that he needed to get to. So his main entrances were in the Paris Opera House, but he had these other entrances in this, apparently this palace where they had held this big ball event, like this masquerade ball, because he just fucking jumped in the floor and Raoul followed him. Um, I will note from this scene specifically that the engagement ring that Christine Daae has was Raoul's first, which is a big difference from the book as the Phantom gives Christine the book or the ring in the book. Right. But in the movie and in the musical, Raoul gets engaged to her first before she pledges her love to the Phantom or before the Phantom requests her to pledge his her love to him. It's like a whole thing. Right. Raoul jumps into this pit and follows the phantom and is like, the fuck, dude? And the phantom's teasing him down there. Like, uh, you're yes. never going to find me. You you don't know what's happening. Christine, yes. That, yes. Christine is mine. Right now. Christine is mine. And Raoul starts to, like, freak the fuck out because he can't figure out how to get out of this. And right. then Madame Geary, who is well known in the opera house, you know, who works in the opera house, pulls him out because she knows where he ended up because somehow she knows about all the catacombs pulls him out and then raul and madame giri have this conversation about who the fuck the phantom is exactly and madame giri finally like raul convinces madame giri finally to tell the story the true story of the phantom yes that she knows so we find out the history of the phantom here from madame giri madame giri as a child went to what i guess could be considered a circus but basically the gypsy, like a freak show the gypsies come to town 
And she goes with, I don't know, her family. They don't ever really say, but she's there watching this gypsy show happen. And this guy is beating a child who has a sack on his head. And he's beating him up and doing all these things. This kid is in a cage. Like he can't go anywhere. He's trapped in a cage. He has a sack on his head and this guy is beating him. And he's like, look into the face of the devil. This is the child of the devil. This is the son of the devil, whatever. And he pulls the sack off the kid's face and the kid's face is deformed, like grotesquely deformed. And everyone in the audience is freaked the fuck out except young Madam Geary, like, okay, that's just a little boy with like a messed up face. Like, that's fine. That happens sometimes. Like, Madam Geary's super understanding. And the gypsy guy like beats him a couple more times and gets his money from all the people watching. And then all the people leave except the little girl. She leaves the area right around the cage, but doesn't actually leave the whole area. She like hides herself away. Yeah, she's kind of watching from a distance. And the kid in the cage loosens the ropes or like a rope was left in his cage or something. And he strangles the gypsy who was beating him because he was getting beat. And these other gypsies walk in and see that the guy has died and yell, murder, murder, like this kid murdered this grown guy. And Madame Geary, young Madame Geary, runs and helps him escape and takes him, like they run away. Basically, the two kids run away. And she finds a grate into the catacombs and lets him in and is like, go down here. They won't ever find you. Right. You know, you'll be okay. And you really get the sense, at least in the movie, kind of in the musical, but more so in the movie, because you get a right. lot more of the story in the in the movie of this part. For you sure. Get the, you get the sense that Madame Geary and the Phantom have shared this long, enduring friendship slash right. like, like history. Love? There's a history there that there, you have just not heard ex- at all. Yeah, sure. there's like this sense of love there that you don't ever... They don't ever see. It's like it's, a sibling love. Yeah, but it's sure. kind of there. So she releases him basically into the catacombs and says, you're free. Just stay down there and do whatever you got to do. If you And she gives him the directions to the opera house. If you go this way and this way, you'll get underneath the opera house. And there's like a bunch of cool shit basically in right. that area under the opera house. So while he's down there for years and years and years, he builds you know, his extensive layer, he builds all these traps, he, what we assume is helps build the opera house, but we don't actually know, because right. in the movie, they don't ever say whether or no. not he was involved. In the book, they do describe it as him being a big yep. part of why the, why the opera house is there, but they never yep. get too in-depth in it in the musical. No. So Raul is taking all of this in, of this story, and he's like, oh shit, like, this dude has lived a fucked up life, and... No wonder he's in love with whoever the current right. soprano is. Like, he's never known love. He's never experienced this. He's never known a fucking real-ass human life in society. In a human society, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So, Raul comes up with this plan of how he's going to get the Phantom out and how he's going to trap him, basically, in a way where he can't hurt Christine anymore. And he tells this plan to the other investors, to the people who own the opera and to the conductor. And they set up this big elaborate like, okay, we're going to do his 
opera, Don Juan Triumphant. We're going to have Christine play the lead. We're going to do all these things. And meanwhile, Christine is a nervous wreck. Like, she is legitimately having a nervous breakdown. Understandably. Completely understandable because she doesn't want to be the bait, essentially, for this kidnapper guy who has been in love with her for years, who she thought was the angel of music sent from her dad, but it's really just this creepy phantom guy who has been teaching her music for years. So she agrees and all of that. Her and Raul are waiting in her dressing room, like on one of the days between when they decide to do Don Juan Triumphant and when they actually perform Don Juan Triumphant. And he is basically acting as her bodyguard. Like, I'm going to watch over you all the time. Like, not in a sexual way at all. It's just like, you sleep over here. I'm going to sit over here and I'm going to watch you sleep. I'm going to make sure the Phantom doesn't come in and attack you or anything like that. He is being good guy Raul. And he falls asleep one night and Christine wakes up while he's still asleep and is like, sweet i'm out i'm gonna go see my dad at the cemetery like i need to go talk to my dad to the ghost of my dad or whatever like i need to be around my dad so she goes to the cemetery where her dad is buried and she goes to his mausoleum and is singing this song to him like i don't know what to do you know you sent me this I thought you were going to send me this angel of music and it ended up being this creepy like stalker dude. Where am I? What do I do? And Raul wakes up and realizes that she's gone and is like, oh, fuck, where did she go? He gets down the steps of the opera house and finds her coachman there. And her coachman is able to tell him, oh, she went to the cemetery where her dad is buried. And Raul realizes that because the coachman is there, that means the phantom must have taken her to the cemetery. So, right. Or at least he's taken her coach. Yeah. So Raul jumps on a horse, like in a badass scene. He just like barebacks a fucking horse and, <laughs> and ends up at this cemetery trying to protect Christine from the phantom who is clearly watching over her or doing whatever. He's scared for Christine's life. And he knows that Christine has some sort of feeling towards the Phantom and can't yeah. really can't really control herself. Right. Once the Phantom starts singing, it's kind of like the Phantom has cast a spell on her with right. his music. It's like they, a drug. Yeah, but they never explicitly say in the movie or the musical that he is magic or has these magic powers. It's just kind of like... When he sings, she's in awe and she can't look she's away or go away. She's just enraptured, exactly. Yeah. So she's singing to her dad and her dad's mausoleum opens and the angel of music slash the phantom is singing back at her, answering her questions, basically. They're singing this beautiful duet and Christine basically goes blank-eyed and starts fa- like walking into the mausoleum like because... Right. That's how drunk she is on the music of the Phantom of the Opera. And Raul shows up just in time to convince her, do not follow that music. Like, don't do it. It's the fucking Phantom. Right. So the Phantom's like, oh, no, bitch. You did not just take my girl from me. And he jumps down and they have a sword fight, which in the musical, in the actual stage musical, they have a magic fight. Like, <laughs> like Raul is carrying a gun in the musical, and 
the phantom has magic fireballs that appear out of his hands because he's magic maybe we don't know but the movie thank god they took all that shit out and they were like no we're not doing this absurd like gun magic fire duel we're doing a regular ass sword duel and it's actually really cool. Man. Yeah, so, it's so good. It's, it's a, so It's a really well good. shot scene. The cemetery scene in this movie is actually one of my favorites cinematically because of the way that they built the cemetery around them. The statues are huge and yes. like magnificent. They're beautiful. So him and Raul get into this fight. They're sword fighting. They're sword fighting. The Phantom gets... A couple of solid hits on Raul. He's like bleeding intensely from his arm. And Raul gets the phantom pinned down, like about to kill him. And Christine right. is like, don't. No. This is not like, don't do it. I, if you kill him, I won't be able to look at you the same. Don't kill him. Let's just leave. Which happens in quite a bit of cinema. Like it happens in movies. It happens in plays. It happens in books all the time. Like, don't kill this person. He's bad enough. Right. He's and it always has things. to be the woman because the woman is pure. The woman cannot, yeah. you know, fucking douse herself in any sort of like murderous acceptance. The woman always has to be like, no, you can't kill him. Even if he is literally the devil or the most evilest person on the face of the earth. Absolutely. And ex- exactly. The, the fucking protagonist hero character has to at the very least show some sort of mercy in the process whether it is mercy that is shown and the evil dude still dies or whatever it is it's yeah so raul lets the phantom live and him and Christine go back to the opera house. They're getting ready for Don Juan Triumphant. They're about to perform that. She performs Don Juan Triumphant and she starts singing her song. And the Phantom, dressed as what I can assume is Don Juan, I don't actually know because they don't actually say, but he comes out in the middle of the show and sings to her. And again, she becomes mesmerized because she can't help herself but become mesmerized by his voice. And they're singing and then they disappear. And everyone's like, the fuck? No, what happens in the movie? I'll help you. You're drunk. It's fine. I can help you because I know that because I know this because it was one of the moments that I felt the same way as you did. And it was actually a moment that I watched in cinema that I was like, oh, fuck, fuck, yes, because she sells it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. you're right. She sells it like every other instance in every moment of the movie. She, she is always in, in. She's always drunk with his music. She cannot resist him. Every single thing we've seen up to this point tells us that she's under his spell. It's over. It's yes. literally fucking over. Yes. And at the very last fucking second, she, she pulls off his mask. Up. Exactly. And yep. pulls his fucking mask off. Yep. And then he loses his shit. Because how dare you take his fucking mask off? And he's like, all right, well, 
you had your chance. Now everyone's dying. I don't give a fuck. Everyone in this exactly. theater is dying. And he pulls his fucking shit, whatever it is. He, yeah, he pulls you know. levers. He does some things. He brings the giant chandelier down. Um, he releases it from its hook or something. And it drops and should have killed hundreds of people. But in the movie, Literally. it kills kills nobody because of the way that it swings and everybody had time to get out of the way but he basically throws the chandelier down and it sets the opera house on fire and he kidnaps christine again in this moment because why the fuck not and takes her down to his lair at this point raul is like running trying to find madame giri because she clearly knows the phantom clearly has this long relationship with the phantom she's like how do i get down there i have to save christine so madame geary takes him to this like hidden staircase through the mirror in christine's bedroom and he follows it down madame geary's like okay i'm done this is as far as i'll go right and at this point in the musical it would have been the persian in the book exactly. it's the persian in the musical the persian doesn't exist like no. he's not in the show at all it's exactly. just madame giri they take his part and they give it to madame giri he's the one that fills in the story of the past of the phantom he's and the to one- be fair honestly like i appreciate the decision to keep it to like merge the two characters because in the novel madame giri is not a flattering character yeah it's a very misogynistic character actually like i kept some of the like details of like how she's characterized out of when i was like talking about it in this episode it's just not good and so i i i do fully appreciate the merging of those two characters into one yeah fully and i would have been cool with it either being a man person of color or a madame gary character and they just so happened to have chosen a madame gary character to be you know someone that could have been around and uh have a presence for the entire musical and it is one that i do really like commend andrew lloyd weber and the creators when he first put the musical on I do commend them in that decision because I do feel like it was the best one to make in that scenario to try and merge those two characters. They needed someone who was going to be there for the entire musical who wasn't going to just be an insert that the audience was not going to accept was not going to be satisfied satisfied with so they kept it as a woman to be that mentor figure in the beginning but could also then transform into what we needed from what in the novel was given to us from mr p for sure yeah so Madame Geary takes him down, shows him where to go, and he starts heading down. You know, she's like, no, I'm not going any farther. So he keeps going. He ends up in this room full of water, and this gate comes down from the ceiling and basically traps him underwater, and he can't get out. Um, 
Christine is watching this happen basically on the other side of the gate and is trying to find, figure out a way. She tries to convince the phantom and eventually he's like, okay, fine. I won't let him drown. And Raul doesn't end up drowning in that instance, but the phantom goes over to him when he's right. There's like another gate wall that's separating Raul from the room that Christine and the phantom are in. Yes. So the phantom goes over to where Raul is and ties him up. Got has a, a rope around his neck, has his body all tied up to the thing, and is like, this is it, I'm killing him. Like, you better, you know, you prove your love to me, promise me you'll never leave me, whatever, whatever. You know, you got to prove to yourself, prove to me that you're mine, so, or I'm going to kill him. Right. And she has to make a decision in that moment like either I give myself to the phantom and I'm never happy for the rest of my life and I save Raul or we both die like the phantom's just gonna be pissed and kill us both meanwhile Raul is pleading with her don't give yourself up for me I'm not worth it I will die it's fine save yourself run away from the phantom obviously fucking young child woman virginity is the absolute be all and end all of the uh, gifts to give away there is is a lot of there is a lot of um, lyrics at this point (laughs) that, that point towards the phantom that insinuate that the phantom is like no we're gonna fuck or that's it and (laughs) i actually i don't necessarily like i mean i don't like those lyrics because of their content but really it's odd because that doesn't ever end up happening in the show it's just like the phantom threatening her with rape essentially um so that she chooses him to make her choose him um she Which ends is just up fucking absurd. It is but absurd. It's fine. All of it is absurd, so it's yes. okay. So <laughs> she ends up deciding to quote unquote love the Phantom and save Raoul. This is all done in song, mind you, because this is a musical. Yes. This whole everything I've been describing has been right. done in song. By basically. the way, if you were not a fucking aware, <laughs> yeah. Just like apply that backwards. Yeah. So she is singing to him saying basically, okay, I give up. I'm yours. I'll be yours. I promise I won't go to Raul. Um, Come here. Let me kiss you. Let me show you that I'm in love with you. And she convinces the phantom to walk away from where he's holding Raul, which lets Raul go basically. And she kisses him passionately showing suggesting that she loves him and in that moment where she kisses him he realizes that this is the first time that anyone has ever truly loved him or truly shown him any type of affection and that one instance of being shown true affection because she kisses him like normally with his knowing mask on all of his evil shit knowing he, all of his evil he's and been he's been doing evil fucking shit this yes. entire fucking and, time and then she takes his mask off and his hair off because he's wearing a wig and sees his deformed face and kisses him again and he takes that as 
oh shit, she's accepted me exactly how I am. Like she's, she loves me. This is the most feelings I've ever felt basically. And he can't, he doesn't know how to deal with the feelings that he's feeling except to let her go. He's like, what I've been doing to you is wrong. He, he basically has all of these sudden realizations like, no, the love that you feel for Raul is the love that Raul deserves to feel from you. Like you guys deserve to be happy. Uh, you're free to go. Bye. I'm out. Right. And it's almost like he didn't actually expect this to be the ending. And the mm-hmm. fact that she gives it to him just overwhelms him. Yes, absolutely. And he lets her go and her and Raul leave. And the cops who have been surrounding the theater because, you know, there was that big whole plan to do Don Juan Triumphant and the fandom was going to show up. <laughs> BT dub. The cops that have been surrounding the theater are making their way down into the catacombs to his lair. Like, basically, they're going to find the phantom and it's going to be all over for him. So Christine and Raul leave and they're gone. And that's the end, basically the end of the movie. Now, like I said, this movie does start in the future. It starts at 1919 and then jumps back to 1870 to tell the story of the Phantom of the Opera. Now, Raoul in 1919, as an old man, buys this little brass monkey at the auction before the chandelier. He buys this little monkey And at the end of the movie, we see old Raoul take the monkey to Christine Daae's grave and place it on her grave as like a, I miss you, I love you. She died two years before. We find out she died in 1917, which could have been from hundreds of different reasons. Like she wasn't that old, but it was France. There's no indication of what she died from. It was France in the early 1900s, so who knows what happened to her. But she passes away, and he's heartbroken, so he brings this token from their days at the opera, basically, as a token of appreciation. When he drops it off at her grave, there is also a rose there with the engagement ring that he gave her initially that he knows that she gave to the Phantom. So... This is us, the audience, finding out and Raul finding out that the Phantom made it out alive and still exists somewhere. Right. Okay. And has been watching them this entire time. And has time. been watching them the I'm entire time. Sure. Never lost his love interest in Christine. Now, in comparison to the book, there were a lot of instances where Sam mentioned shadows and seeing faint shadows of the Phantom or yes. of the ghost of the opera. In those instances in the book, they were replaced in the movie and in the musical with roses. If you've ever seen the the cover of the Phantom of the Opera or a playbill for the Phantom of the Opera or whatever, even the cover of the book, it's literally a mask and then a rose because the Phantom wears a mask to cover up his horrendously fucked up face and... He leaves the rose as he his calling roses card. Is, yeah, as his calling card all the time. In, rather than shadows, the movie didn't waste its time with kind of shadows or ghosts like magically appearing. They only did roses. 
So whenever Christine felt that the that the ghost was there or that the angel of music was there and wasn't sure, she would end up with a rose with a black ribbon around it. And at the end, at her grave, there is a rose with the engagement ring tied to it that Raul gave to Christine in the movie. And but, he ripped from her throat during masquerade. Yes, but he ended up with it in masquerade. So, yeah, that's basically what happened. Uh, in the musical, they get rid of the concept of magic completely. Or right. not in the musical. Let me rephrase. In, in this movie, movie. In the in movie the, musical, yes. they yes. got rid of the idea of magic completely. In the musical, they kept a bit of that magic in... It could um, be ambiguous, and I'm thinking, like, he could have had fucking makeshift little, like, bombs that he could have been throwing at Raul, and that yeah. could have been the, the like, insinuation there, because yeah. it is a thousand percent possible that they could have, like, had little pouches filled with gunpowder that, you know... Uh, someone had their little fucking matches that they just lit it and threw it, lit it and threw it, lit it and threw it. It's definitely possible, but the actual stage musical left it very open to interpretation of, is the Phantom magical? Is he not? Who fucking knows? But the 2000, specifically the 2004 end of 2004 movie made it pretty clear, no, this is a dude. This yeah. is a fucking dude. It's a normal and dude who just had a shitty life. magical, exactly. He just had a shitty-ass life, and he fucking learned all these tricks and learned, it, you know, and dug all of his fucking little secret passageways, and this is how he's lived his life entirely. Yeah. Okay, so some other differences besides just the roses and the magic concept from the book um the masked phantom in the book is described quite differently than it ends up being in the musical and even the mask on the cover of the book of the phantom of the opera is different than what ends up being his mask in all versions of the musical in the book the mask covers like his lip his top lip and all the way up to the top yes. of his face because it describes his lip as being deformed. In- he has, no, he literally has like no lips. So yeah. most of the mask is his top half of his mouth and then the, like what we would consider the cheeks slash jowl area. The only area that is left not as a mask is the lower jaw. The area, chin, basically, basically, yeah, exactly, yeah. And in the musical and in this movie, they changed it so it's just one side of his face is grotesque and messed up, and the other side is just normal. Like in the movie, they show it very a lot because they hired Gerard Butler and he's gorgeous, so they have to show For off sure. Gerard Butler's gorgeous face. Gazillion percent. So, you know, half of Gerard Butler's face is covered and the other half is clearly gerard butler you can see it they want you to see it Mm -hmm. um because it's gerard butler but it's like that in the (laughs) musical as well they want you to see half of the phantom's face 
clearly and just assume or know that the other half of his face is messed up. Right. Some other differences are there's a moment where Carlotta is singing and she does the toad sounds. Yes. And it's described in the book, or at least how you described it, is that it's like magic, like the phantom had put a curse on her. It's instantaneous, essentially. Yeah. She's singing and all of a sudden she opens her mouth and it literally doesn't matter what she's trying to sing. If she is standing there singing exactly as she was previously, what the audience doesn't hear, they don't hear that. That's not what the audience hears. Sorry, I should say. They only hear from that moment on if her mouth is open there's Frog a croaking croaks. yeah sound so in the movie and if i'm remembering correctly in the musical the stage play or stage show of it that is um attributed to this voice spray that carlotta uses she uses it several times prior to this instance in the shows or in the show every time she's singing she'll like in her little breaks where she's not the one on stage, she will walk off stage and she has stagehands spray her mouth like with what we can assume is like a lubricant or a cough right. drop, like a liquid cough drop essentially to help her voice remain, like her vocal cords remain slide. wet and, and slide and all these things. Um, so she does that at this point in the musical and she walks off stage she gets the sprays she comes back on stage to sing and then she starts singing as croaks so they kind of insinuate that it's not like a curse it's just like oh he put some shit into that that's gonna make her sound like into the spray yeah they put some shit in the spray that's gonna make her sound like a fucking frog a couple of other differences there's no childhood memories in this movie um they don't ever really go back to like describing how Raul and Christine were friends prior to their time at the opera house except for just saying we knew each other when we were kids right like it's not necessarily it's something that was taken out of the story that deserved to be stake, taken out of the story like it wasn't necessary it for would the have story enriched the story exactly it yeah. would have made it a lot more meaningful and emotional for her and Raoul's emotion but they just cut it out because they were just like ah we don't need it yeah the mayhem to the box patrons that doesn't happen in this because they don't have time for that like I said like we've said already um, when you do musicals as movies you do have to cut a little bit because people for whatever reason will sit through two and a half hours but won't sit through three hours of a musical that that extra half an hour that's the mayhem "Mm, to the box patrons they were just like no cut that like we don't need that um another part that does not i don't remember i don't think it's in the musical at all um but is in the book they cut philippe de chenet completely out no he's not he's not a character a thousand percent he's not there 100 percent both both he and the persian were characters that they decided they just didn't need and gave their small parts to other characters to enrich the other characters that weren't necessary to tell the story um and just added to them i will say oh there's one other thing the character uh joseph bouquet who you described at the very beginning of the book as being hanged and found in the opera house. Yes. This is shown in the movie 
but is not does not take place right at the beginning in the middle of the movie they are performing an opera and it's basically after everyone defies the phantoms like wishes we're not going to put christine in the lead we're going to put carlotta in the lead and she's going to sing and the phantom is basically like the fuck you are and he grabs this stage hand off of the rigging up in the top in the top of the theater and he hangs him in the middle of the play like there are people in the audience watching this man get hanged to death and he dies in the middle of the performance and all of the performers are like oh my god freaking out all of the audience is freaking out and then the fandom just lets his body go and it drops to the stage and everyone runs out screaming because someone literally died in the theater like exactly cursed hashtag cursed you don't fucking do that (laughs) um Fun fact number one, or gross fact number one, Christine is only 16. Thousand percent. What? <laughs> That's what I got to say about that. That's what I got to say about that. Like, I honestly, all it would have taken is them changing the date on her grave by two years. Like, they, right. like. To be fair, in the novel, it's insinuated. I can't remember if specific dates are involved, but it's insinuated that. She and the Vicomte Raoul are actually pretty close in age. He's still older than her, but it's not, it's not a like, oh, I mean, I'm very obviously a decade older than you and an adult and you're a child, but I'm in love with you. It's not that. It's actually a like, he's a peer of hers. And that's why when they were young and when she was like in their like summer getaway for them he was playing with her because she was around his same age she's still younger than him but from what i remember and i even did reread uh for the episode he is closer to her age than actually i would have expected to be perfectly honest from a classic piece of literature that it it's much more acceptable than for instance if she ended up with eric or ended up with like with raul's older brother or something like that yeah so i guess i don't really have a problem with her and raul because i do i do see them as peers um whether or not I mean, Emmy Rossum, when she played this role, was only 17. So, I mean, that's a little iffy to me. But I understand that the character of Raul is meant to be young as well. Especially for Patrick Wilson and Gerard Butler. Like, like he's, like, the the Raul's character is meant to be maybe 18, 19. Like, that's not so huge that it's a problem. Right. Um, Especially when you think about the fact that it's 1870 and women were expected to be married at 14 like at that point christine was basically an old maid and raul was old as fuck for his age to not you know for his yeah he he was in his 20s from what i remember he was definitely in his 20s but 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 the phantom's love for christine is for sure problematic because the phantom is like 50 
Yes. 60? And He's Christine a good is at least 16? like two decades removed from her. Oh, at, at least. At least. At least because he's so he's the same Because he's the same age as uh, Madame Geary. And I'm like, <laughs> the fuck? That's nasty. Exactly. Like, y'all nasty. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, last fun fact about this film, really, is this film is actually 23 years in the making. Um, as Sam mentioned before, this movie, this musical came out in 1986. It was widely loved by critics and everyone who's into Absolutely. musicals. It has its run. It ran for years and years and years and years and years on Broadway. Yeah. And the plan to make this into a movie musical started in 1989 and it literally took them years to really get the plans to make this into a movie musical off the ground. So they didn't start production and true work on this movie musical until 2002. And then over the course of the next two years, got it done and finally released it in 2004. So yeah, this film took a really long time to produce. And in the time that it took from its initial release on Broadway to the time when this film came out, the Phantom of the Opera had time to create an extensive musical fan base. Everyone loves this musical. I can remember when this movie came out in 2004. I remember going to go see this in theaters with a bunch of my band friends because it was Andrew Lloyd Webber and it was a musical and it was, you know, this really hit hit the scene before movie musicals got super big. Yeah. I would say movie musicals kind of go in a rotation like all the rest of media sure. really, but there was like a big boom in the 70s of movie musicals and then the 80s were just kind of dead to musicals and the 90s yeah. were kind of dead to musicals, movie musicals. And then in the early 2000s, Phantom of the Opera in 2004 kicked it off and we have not stopped since Phantom of the Opera came out. Oh, it no. was like Phantom of the Opera and then Rent and then Hairspray and then Hairspray. Yeah. Like, Hunt, like tons of movie musicals have so come out much. in the last 15 20 years um and i uh, will continue forever to attribute a lot of that success to the success of Phantom of the opera and how good the movie musical was okay seven word synopsis for the novel <laughs> for the novel <laughs> I don't know. Struggle. The struggle is real, y'all. Singing makes dudes love you too much. That is my first seven word synopsis. Grown men fall in love with child. <laughs> nice. That's my thing for the book. Hold on pedophilia but france and opera plus ghosts <laughs> yeah pedophilia plus ghosts there in it france, is plus that... opera ghosts in france in fact i'm gonna keep that for the seven <laughs> word synopsis for the actual musical movie that is my synopsis maybe hold on i'll think of one 
Gerard Butler, Patrick Wilson, French sword fight. <laughs> okay. Here's my one for the musical. And I'm excited <laughs> about this. I had to change it around a bit. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome Girl gets stalked to music. Damn. Damn. That had fucking alliteration in it, actually. Like, that's okay. fucking legit. Let's change it then. Stockholm Syndrome Girl gets stalked to song. Change yes. music to song. Then it's yes. more alliterative. Yeah, no, it's per it's literally perfect. The fact that that is not the synopsis for the Phantom of the Opera throughout the novel, the musical, the movies, that should be the synopsis for literally every single one of them. Accurate AF. Yes. Okay, so the only thing I have left to say about the Phantom of the Opera musical is that because this musical is so renowned and loved and has been around for decades yes it warranted a sequel that literally nobody asked for but it has a sequel going to it came say. out in 2012 it was released in theaters kind of like um there's the theater special events like it wasn't oh, we're, it's going to sit in theaters for months. It was just like a one night, two night only, like come see this movie and this is the if continuation of Phantom of the Opera. in SoCal, in the Los Angeles slash Sands area, San Santa Monica, uh, Santa Barbara, yeah. <laughs> all of those like Santa places Anna, down San there. Pedro, yeah. Uh, you know what we're talking about in terms of like some movies for you guys actually show up in theaters for a couple days for us they just don't because our yeah. theaters were so fucking small they're just like ah yeah. fuck those guys well i went and saw this at the theater here in fresno um it was only at the one giant theater it wasn't at any of the other small ones it was only yeah. at the one it was a special event it was like they do um the met like the Met Opera does a bunch of special events when theater when coronavirus wasn't a thing and they used to do special <laughs> events they would show like one opera a month right right like right, 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 a right. more expensive ticket but you could go watch like a right. full 3 4 hour opera and just sit For there sure. and enjoy it they yeah. did that with Love Never Dies which is the name of the Phantom of the Opera sequel and as a I'm not going to really go into too much detail about Love Never Dies because... Isn't it also still from Andrew Lloyd Webber? Yes, he did write it. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber did pin did pin the sequel. He did write all the music, um, but it was not well received. Yeah. Um, everyone... It was like one of those sequels that nobody asked for. Right. Like everyone loves Fan of the Opera, but nobody needed to know, you know, what happened after that. It when it was done, um, it was fucking done. Not a yes. single person was like, oh, I need to know what happened to Eric. No, no. Yes. A thousand percent. So in the original Phantom of the Opera musical, we don't know that his name is Eric. They never mention it in in the musical his name is just the phantom or right. the opera ghost that's it we we don't know his name in love never dies we do learn that his name is eric 
So they kind of pull in a couple of things from the book that they didn't get to in the original musical, right. a couple of random details. But basically, this takes place 10 years past the events of the Phantom of the Opera original. Um, Christine and Raul now have a son. Christine Daae is now one of the most world-renowned opera singers in the world ever. And they relocate to Coney Island, New York for a performance that Christine is going to put on. Um, And she basically is asked to perform solely for this person called Mr. Y, who, guess what? It's the fucking Phantom. And he's just talking in a pseudonym and yeah, that's basically the story. And they share... (laughs) They share, you know, duets kind of similar to the Phantom, you know, like, does she love him? We don't know. Right. There's like all this love tension, but more triangle tension. More, yeah, more love triangle tension, more like, will Raul kill the Phantom this time? Will they right. fight it to the death? And uh, all of that. And it's honestly just the same thing as phantom of the opera but he has a lot less control of what's happening because it's not it's a place that he didn't build yeah Yeah. he's not in the catacombs that he's lived in for 40 years like he's just in coney at this opera house in coney island and christine is happily married they've been together for a long time it's you know it is unnecessary it was an it was an unnecessary it's a fanfic that got like for some reason they 50 shades of grade it absolutely it's just more of more continuation of the story that nobody really needed i could not tell you any of the songs from love never dies they're not great but i could list to you nearly the entire soundtrack of the phantom of the opera because the music gets stuck in your head and will not ever leave um so warning (laughs) if Music gets stuck in your head easily. It's going to for sure get stuck in your head from Phantom of the Opera. All right. Do you have anything else to add about the musical or the book or the sequel? I don't. I don't have anything else to add. Thank you so much for everyone listening. Uh, as you can clearly tell, we love the Phantom of the Opera. All <laughs> versions. Um, Sam clearly did her work on the book and knows what the fuck she's talking about. And the Phantom of the Opera. Yes. And I don't know if when reading this book, like if I had read this book before I saw the musical, if I had thought, oh, hey, you know what? This book really needs to go to music. But <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber crushed it. He and- totally crushed it with his yeah. fucking... It, using this novel as fucking inspiration, Andrew Lloyd Webber took all of the necessary ingredients and made all of the right fucking decisions. Yes. But and it's honestly exactly how I feel about Lynn manuel Miranda. And like, if you don't know anything about the Hamilton musical and how it was created. You're wrong. Um, Hamilton, <laughs> uh, Lin-Manuel, basically, he went on a vacation with his wife and on the plane trip to wherever they went i can't remember where they went but they went somewhere far it was like a long some random plane ride he bought a book in a book in one of the shops in the airport that was Mm -hmm. like a biography of hamilton 
and he read it on the flight and then finished reading it during his vacation. He became obsessed with the story about Hamilton and immediately was like, I have to write a musical about this. I have to tell this story in a musical way. Like there's got to be a way to bring this character to life in an interesting way that will get everyone as hyped about Hamilton as I am. When you're inspired, when you're inspired, you create and whatever your medium is, that's what you're going to create for. And that is always the perfect time to create Mm -hmm. when you are in the midst of an obsession and it fuels you to create something. And that is why things like fanfic and all of those other things are glorious because at the very least, fanfic gives people who should and can be legitimate writers, their inspiration to begin their craft. And that that spark, that like spark of creation, essentially, that fuels you when you read something or you watch something or you listen to something and you have to make something more in whatever artistic medium that you love, that that is art that is the full seed of art and you are an artist you are creating something that whether it is something that is fan fiction whether it is something that is a derivative work or a transformative work or an adaptation none of that fucking matters what matters is when you feel that seed and you feel that drive fucking write it down fucking create it because the worst case scenario is you've created it for yourself but even in that scenario you have it down you have it for your family you have it for people that read what you've written down later on in life and who fucking knows where that goes who fucking knows what happens after you've written that shit down it might be the catalyst for you understanding that you actually can write all of your original stuff that you've been thinking about it it may be the catalyst for you you know continuing to write all of the musical stuff that you've written even though it's not stuff that is associated with words or you're not a lyricist, but it is something that fueled you and inspired you to create sound. All of that, all of that is fucking encompassed in the artistic spark of inspiration and creation. And if you don't answer it, you're doing yourself first and foremost, a disservice mm-hmm. out of everything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much to everyone who is listening. Thank you. Uh, I hope you get a chance to check out The Phantom of the Opera, either the book or the musical or both. Um, maybe don't waste your time on Love Never Dies. It's honestly not worth <laughs> please it. Please don't. But, Just please don't. But check if out. If you want to and you have like some like extra time, sure. But yeah, otherwise. But, but check out The Phantom <laughs> of the Opera um there are some movie versions available to you of the book that is more a a true retelling of the book without music attached to it so if musicals aren't really your thing you can find several of those they're out there they're out there they exist um so go check them out it's a really cool story and we think you'll really like it so from all of us here from Sam and I, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you have any, yeah. if you have any questions, 
feel free to tweet us at Allentown Pod. You can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Allentown Presents. And as always, thank you for listening to Real Lit. We love you. Bye. Bye.